Heavy Cardboard, Episode 43, Auctions and Beats All Lacerda. Coming to you from Sotheby's Auction House, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. I'm Tony. And I'm Amanda. Amanda, why don't you tell them how to get in touch with us? Our website is heavycardboard.com. Our email address is contact at heavycardboard.com. We love to hear from you guys, so please send us email or follow us on Twitter at heavycardboard. Our Facebook page is heavycardboard. Our Instagram is heavycardboard. And our BGG guild number is 2044. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash heavycardboard. A couple months back, I asked if y'all could help out with leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes to hopefully, you know, one day, get us onto the What's Hot list front page on on iTunes Gaming Podcast. Well, I'm happy to say, y'all did it. Y'all came through. On Sunday, February 21st, we made that page. We made the front page of the Gaming Podcast on iTunes. So thank you. Now, the goal is to consistently keep us on there because, well, honestly, we're not there anymore. So that would be great. So please keep the reviews coming. Since the last episode, these fine folks have done just that. Razor6, TP Chid, and Jason D74. Thanks, y'all. And the rest of y'all who haven't left reviews, get on it. Pretty so, please. So what you're saying is it's like crack where one hit and then... <laughs> You come down, yeah. you need another hit, you need, it's iTunes crack. It is, it, and I would prefer just to have a constant buzz then. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, uh, life feels like it's getting a bit overwhelming for me right now as far as busy. Um, it'll pass eventually, but there's just a lot on my plate. For those that don't know, um, my whole life consists of lists Uh, written down for things to to get to do whatever because i'm like a goldfish if i don't write it down i'll forget not that goldfish can write things down but you get they don't have they don't have thumbs right so my current one has 42 things on it and only a couple of them crossed off so you know a week off of work would be great with nothing no other obligations no nothing just do stuff and I mean, first world problems, don't get me wrong, I understand that, but man, I'll be happy when this when this passes. <laughs> me so what's, too. What's been going on? Yeah, no doubt, right? <laughs> what's been going on with y'all? Well, um, we've been getting a lot of Age of Steam men lately, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I fully admitted that whenever I first played the game, I absolutely hated it, but I've now been bitten by the bug and fallen in love and... All the different different maps and ways to go about things, and that always makes me very happy. So I'm happy about that. Um, our Weight Watchers update: I am down 11 pounds. Whee! Congrats! Nice. And I am down 12 pounds in our first five weeks. Woo-hoo! We've been doing so well, and the main reason why we've been doing so well is because we've been eating so well. I mean, it's. It's not terribly hard to follow when you get to eat amazing meals every day. And thank goodness for Edward, because otherwise I would be living off of lean cuisine and, you know, like ice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's the kind of diet I can get behind. Like I made pork green chili this week, Uh, made shepherd. I made shepherd's pie this week. 
Uh, I mean, sure, we have big salads with this to help as, as filler and lots of water, but man, this is a diet I can diet. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Tony, you made uh, you made that uh, uh, crawdad corn uh, chowder corn not too long ago. The corn bisque, which was amazing. So it just mm-hmm. goes to show, diet food doesn't have to be diet food, you know? No, certainly not. In fact, uh, I had some of your green chili for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. Oh, Very nice. Some leftovers nice. from Saturday, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it was. So hopefully you, okay, I was going to say hopefully you liked it. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have eaten it twice if not. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair once enough. on Saturday and once tonight. Awesome. Um, the only thing I've got on, on bleh, the only thing I have for this little section is I just wanted to say thanks to everybody out there on Twitter and Facebook and the Guild and everything for their for your well wishes and kind thoughts as I as we all announced my departure last uh, episode. So thanks, everybody. Meant a lot. Yeah, and thanks, thanks for the warm welcome as well. Yeah, I'll be honest. I mean, I didn't expect anybody to cuss Amanda and tell us to get her off the show or anything, but I, if they didn't like her, I assumed they wouldn't say anything. And I'll be honest, the response has been really warm and welcoming. So this is, is nice to hear, you know? So if you all haven't heard by now, we have officially launched our Patreon page. In fact, we've already reached our first goal, which is that we are now officially a bi-weekly podcast. This means we're recording every other week, not just the first and third Thursday of every month. All thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you haven't heard of Patreon, think of it as something akin to a tip jar. Unlike other sites like Kickstarter and such, y'all know that we already are making the show and there's no guilt here. We produce the show, you like the show, you're can keep on enjoying heavy cardboard and we're going to continue producing the show regardless if y'all choose to patronize our work or not we started our patreon page well frankly because a number of y'all have asked us to and it's a way for y'all to say thanks by supporting the show with a few bucks each month this in turn helps make it easier for us to upgrade equipment purchase better hosting improve the website create more content more often process is pretty simple You go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard. Sign up and pledge however much you want to help the show each month. The levels range from $2 to $20 a month, which will convey benefits based on the level that you choose to support. Things like early access to limited edition shirts, vote on upcoming games that we feature, even having private Google Hangout sessions with us. There's even a level for custom postagrams. We also have some goals that, if and when we hit them, have us creating more shows more often, which I mentioned, we've already reached that one, so awesome, thank you. And even bringing back, say, a certain co-host a number of times each year. What? Which, which, which certainly seems popular, let me tell you. But if there's something that you guys would like to see as a goal or as a reward for supporting the show, please tell us. We want to make this fun and rewarding for y'all as well. So, that's the pitch. We'll occasionally mention the Patreon here and there on our show, but we're not looking to shove it down y'all's throats all the time. We do what we do because we love it, and it's fun, first and foremost. If y'all feel like it's worth a a couple of bucks a month, awesome. We will gladly accept it. We're going to keep on producing the show, and hopefully y'all keep on listening and enjoying it. We have a lot of exciting ideas, interviews, and of course, reviews planned for 2016 and beyond. So we hope you all join us for the ride. And remember, every other th- hmm. 
And remember, every other Thursday now, you'll have a new episode. All thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thanks, y'all. Thank you so much. Very cool. Very cool. I don't think that we should ever have an episode, easy for me to say, leaving, without a contest. (laughs) Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Uh, No pressure, guys. Just keep coming up with something cool and creative now every two weeks. So uh, you got one in mind now, buddy? Yeah. Good thing I do, huh? (laughs) So we decided to try something a little different here. We have some ideas for a future heavy cardboard shirt, but we wanted to open the design up to y'all. So, design something that is reasonable to be printed on a shirt and submit it to contest at heavycardboard.com with the subject line, t-shirt design, and we'll see what y'all come up with. Note that if you submit a design, it becomes the property of heavy cardboard, but... We're going to keep this one going on for a bit. So Sunday, April 30th is the deadline for submissions. That's two months, y'all. Two months to get in good designs for t-shirts. The winner is going to get their own t-shirt from the first print run when we do print it. And some extra heavy cardboard swag. Keep in mind, with this ending, the end of April, uh, the end of April, HeavyCon is coming around that time. So... Maybe the winner gets a swag bag from HeavyCon in addition to the shirt. I don't know. We'll see. Again, contest at heavycardboard.com. Let's see what you all come up with. Would the winner also perhaps get a chicken dinner? Oh, that was terrible. But we'll we'll possibly, <laughs> possibly. May, maybe I can cook good, them. Yeah, exactly. You're such a good chef. I would think that that would be incentive for people to want to do this. I'll make you a deal. The winner, if they come to Denver, I will cook them a winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yes. Well, I need to uh, ask a point of clarification because any listener out there can write an email and tell us about their favorite game or or this or that or the other thing. Um, But we actually want a picture of some sort, right? I I mean, I don't care. Maybe just scratch it out on a napkin and take a picture of that. I mean, something that we can go on and build a design from, correct? Or a, all up to a full-on, here's a design. Yeah, we there are plenty of graphic design artists out there and yeah. other people. I, 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 yeah, it's got to be a picture. It's got to be a picture of something. Not, not a word, not words of like, <laughs> oh, it's got a circle in it, and above the circle is a triangle with a big laser right, beam right, shooting right. out of it. No, it, <laughs> and it's got, it's got wings like a tattoo. Yeah, that, yeah, I, 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 so, I so see some of the uh, some of the joke uh, submissions people are going to submit. This should be a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, says the guy who doesn't have to check the emails anymore. Thanks, Tony. Good call. <laughs> Just be careful with the length of the trunk. That's all. <laughs> I see unicorns in our future. Heavy Cardboard thanks the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have an awesome reputation and a fantastic inventory of games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices. So check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. You can reach them via email at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. Shall we talk about games that we may have acquired? Now, Let's. I know Amanda doesn't acquire, right? She just uh, approves the acquiring. So what has Amanda not, approved lately? Not, not really. Like, I just, oh, look, there's a box. Here's the scissors. <laughs> yeah, it's like Christmas year-round for Amanda. She never knows what's coming. Exactly. Wee! 
so, all right. So, let's see. I'll start off. Uh, Operation Dauntless. It's a World War II game from GMT. Um, it's a tact- or it's a tactical game, which, I'll be honest, I thought I'd canceled this one because it's <laughs> not really terribly in my wheelhouse. And, uh, well, there it is. Hey, next auction. Right. Oops. Uh, my Secret Elephant Gifts finally arrived. Yay! So my my secret Santa, my secret elephant, sent me a uh, he made a print and play of 18 EU, which looks fantastic, which I'm really excited to to get to the table. And the other thing which I'm really excited about is the 2038 expansion, which is only a print and play, and it looks really really well done, and I'm really happy about it. So thanks for that, secret elephant. On that note, the second of a purported three gifts from my Santa Grogs arrived this week. It's Matanacal. It's uh, uh, about the invasion on Guadalcanal, hmm. which that's cool. It's uh, Ironically, the game was published in 1993. So I think there's no way that my uh, Santa Grogs, oh, my wow. secret, secret Santa, could have known this. But that happens to be the year I joined the Marine Corps. So I thought that was pretty cool as well. For sure. So between Tony and Paul Chad, I've acquired a couple more Age of Steam maps. Age of Steam maps like the Bay Area, for example, and some SNC maps. So thank you, Tony, and thank you, Paul Chad. And last but not least, a non-gaming acquisition that fits here, though. If you look over my right shoulder, guys, you can see I got another... 4x2 Calyx shelf from my office for all of our train games. So, honestly, the real reason we I did that is because it frees up space in the main game library. Yay. Win. <laughs> so, what? Train games aren't main main games? Is that no, they saying? are, but they get a special you know, place here in my office. I think it's nice. And, you know, for, for the people that back us on the Patreon that uh, we have the Google Hangout, they'll be able to see them now. Over my shoulder. See? That's right. All I'm right. enjoying Aww, looking at yeah. them. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and people can critique. I'm sure they will. So, Tony, how about you, Mom? What you acquired lately? Oh, well, let's see. A few things. Uh, also an SNCF map, the Netherlands, courtesy of Martin, one of our listeners. He sold that to me. Uh, I put out a request. Does anybody have one they want to sell? And Martin answered with that. But he also sent me a map of his own creation, SNCF Columbia. I saw that. That was really, really cool. Yeah. And I think it's funny that um, because you and I both check the emails, I was like, hey, Martin, how, how much do you want for that? And you were like, back off my S&C map. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's the Netherlands, by the way. Yes. Um, Chicago funny. Express. I, got, I finally got a copy of Chicago Express. It's another game where I had already had the expansion for, but never actually had the game. And I'm the one with the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I traded Britannia for it, so that was a win. Win-win. Um, big, big win. Zoltog, which is... Ger- yes, exactly. Zoltog. It's German <laughs> for payday. And this is a very, very small German-only game by Franz Benno DeLonga. He's the designer of Container. Container, right. Like Goldbrow, nice. Manila, Big City, you know, Transamerica. He's done a lot of things um, when he was with us, as I... Did he pass away in, what, 2009 or something? Like that? Anyway. Something like that. Um, well, but the reason I bought the game was uh, 
it's an auction game where the you're bidding for government contracts and the low bid wins. So as we'll talk about in tonight's episode, it is a sealed bid, <laughs> last price <laughs> auction. <laughs> yeah, and you were telling me about this. This sounds really cool, dude. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I got to play a four-player game of it on Saturday when the fam was here. And, uh, you know, it's not a heavy game. It's not, you know, a fantastic game or anything like that. But the low bid wins is a really cool mechanic. And if anybody out there in Listenerville knows of a heavier game that's got got a low bid kind of an auction in there, man, I, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, also, uh, it just arrived yesterday, 1861, the JKLM edition. Just totally looks amazing. I funded that purchase by selling um, a study in Emerald. That's really okay. <laughs> yeah. Good job. It is. Whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Why? Sorry. Um, you know, just it's not going to get any action. You need the right five people. You have a copy. You know, it's time to turn that in for uh, something else. Wow. Yeah. All so, right. Same. Yeah, I got – yeah. So – and this was the first edition that you sold, not the second. Yeah, that's right? why. Yeah. That's why it could afford to pay for an eighteen XX game. <laughs> Fair point. Right. Um, let's see. Age of Steam second edition. Paul Chad. He handed me down. Well, he handed me down your copy. I think is right. how it was right because you I, got I, another one. And no, no, no. This is what this is what Chad does, man. He's so awesome, right? He like he gives. He he he's a very generous man. I, I love that guy. Um, so it's I gave my people. third edition to uh, Matt and Dana, and I'm hoping they give that one to somebody when they find a second edition, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's let's keep Chad's generosity going, you know. That's awesome, and we're going to talk a whole lot next episode about Age of Steam, but we're going to explain why people are hunting the second edition. I I also acquired Johari, which is a, a very small little two to four player market game. It's um. Uh, it's got a reputation for being quite dry, but I don't mind that stuff. And uh, both Robin and I like that kind of market stuff. So um, I kind of I got it from her from uh, from Dave just recently. And uh, lastly, you know Tony Tony Kr he finished the SNCF map that we did special for HeavyCon. And dude, Tony, you did an amazing job, man. It, it looks fantastic. It's true to. The classic Winsome style, it's just amazing, man. Thanks that for thing the work sure on that. That sure looks sharp. And, it does. Uh, for those listening, that's going to be in the swag bag for all attendees for HeavyCon. But a few select listeners will also get the chance to win in future contests subsequent uh, copies of the map. They just won't be numbered and signed like the uh, the ones at HeavyCon will. But, so other people will have access to that map, which I'm excited about. All right, so Tony, anything on, that you're hunting or anticipating or on the shopping list, sir? Uh, anticipating just one thing, and that is cacao, which, uh, courtesy of Velma and Amos, thank you very much, will be on its way for uh, my wife, Robin. On that note, I guess I have, uh, what is it? It's the German railways, or railroads, the expansion to Russian railroads on the way from, from Velma over at uh, Game Surplus, so yeah. That, that's pretty much it other than the geek list, Amanda. Well, since we all know that I don't really hunt or receive games, I just play them. The games that I'm looking forward to playing, I signed up to play 1817 at HeavyCon with Steven and a few other guys. And we are playing it at a 12-hour cap. So basically, 
once we hit 12 hours, we're done. Um, I'm really looking forward to it, but I really would like to have a play under my belt already going in. I don't want to be a complete noob to 1817. So Tony and I were talking about that on Sunday, on Saturday, and we're going to see if we can maybe get that played before HeavyCon. So that's always, you know, fun because it's 18XX and 1817 is supposed to be a monster. So I'm excited to dip my toe in and see if I can do it or not. (laughs) Dip your toe in and watch it get bit off. Exactly, right by the sharks. Uh, and, you know, obviously more Age of Steam. And yeah. I've really been thinking about it, and I want to get more into war games. And, you know, by more, I mean actually playing war games. Hmm. Well, you've played Triumph and Tragedy. Well, yeah, that's it. That's really that ain't it, no though. war game. <laughs> See? <laughs> I'm very interested. I'm very interested in World War II as well as modern times and a little Julius Caesar thrown in. And, you know, like they said, I've really only ever played Triumph and Tragedy, and that's only been once. And I'd like to play that more, but I'd also like to maybe play A Distant Plane or Labyrinth or or something else. What would be a good suggestion? U.S. Civil my guys? War. I don't really care about the Civil War. I know that you might spontaneously combust at hearing that. What? I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I, I, I have a good suggestion. Seki Gohara. That's a good one, too. Yeah. Two player. It's lighter. It's kind of Euroy war and it game. It is, and it is on our our uh, three our best of three games list. Yeah. It absolutely is. Yeah. Waterloo campaign. What about World War Two? It's not going East, into that head. East Front. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that might be a bit much for her to start. <laughs> it's all right. Blocks in the west. Blocks in the east. We'll just let her be the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we've been playing a lot of Age of Steam, obviously. So Tony and I have been playing a lot together as well as with with Edward and the rest of our game group. Uh, Edward and I played the Scotland map together. That was a very nice two-player map. I enjoyed it. I got absolutely trounced, but that's okay. We all uh, then we also played the heavy cardboard map that Kevin McCurdy was nice enough to make for HeavyCon last year. We played that with uh, Tony Kr. I'm sorry, Tony and Paul Chad and Edward. And then we played the base Age of Steam map, the Rust Belt map, because we've really never played that. We've only ever played expansion maps. So I played that with Tony Kr, Dana, and Banker Dave. It had been. I I think that was one of the ones that I had played at the very beginning and didn't play it with the right player count and absolutely loathed the game. And mm. we played the Eagle Griffin version with the plastic trains. And ag- again, there, there's a reason why people want the second edition. Yeah. And yeah, with the Age of Steam stuff coming up, we thought it kind of, you, you kind of got to play the, the base map, right? Exactly. At some point. So we did. We're all set. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> then played uh, 1830s Pennsylvania with Tony, uh, Brain Matt, and Paul Chad. And that, I, honestly, that was my favorite map so far. That wow. coal is killer, man. I thought that map was amazing. Uh-huh. It was. And I, I mistakenly stayed out of coal because I'm a dummy and got, you know. Well, you, you didn't want to get dirty. Uh, well, you know, I am a girl and, right. and all. But people were... I was making people use my rail for their their coal, so I got at least some points out of that, some money out of that. How'd you end up doing in that game? Not so good. <laughs> <laughs> and then played the Am- the Amazon Rainforest with Tony and Dana, and that, that map was insane. It's got a really cool market 
part of it that every single tile lay is $5. So Tony and I were completely maxed out on loans with like, it was like four or five turns still to go. And we were completely <laughs> maxed out. We were just having to live on whatever money we were able to scrounge. Pretty much. And I was actually in a different game. The same Rainforest, three-player. Yeah. And uh, it was me, Paul, Chad, and Matt. And we, both games had a bit of a runaway leader issue. But I think that's a player count issue more than anything. But I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, the the kind of tug of war that goes on with the market on how, the value of your deliveries. I really, really dug it's that map. a very, map. very cool mechanic that they added into that map, for sure. The market and the challenges were the only thing I liked about it. I, I just felt like uh, m- most of the actions became devalued at a certain point and really took uh, something off of the game. Yeah, near the end, it was definitely production. It was just about bidding for production, yeah. And engineer. If you if you wanted to lay some track for points near the end. So what about you guys? What have y'all been playing that I haven't mentioned already? Well, uh, let's see. I'm going to mention a few here. One, Edward, you just got a print and play of 18EU. I played 18EU two weekends ago. Pretty darn cool game. You know, it's the ancestor of 18RDN. And I really uh, liked that this version of that game did not have ports and forts. It was actually uh, a little bit cleaner that way, if that makes any sense. But um, that was very, very cool. Also, that that same day, you got to play 1861. That was just a pile of fun. It's a really forgiving game. There's a lot of cash flowing through your companies um, at certain points anyway, and uh, it's really hard to go bankrupt. And uh, but man, the the mechanic of how the miners work and grow up into the majors and the uh, nationalization by the Russian railroad, boy, it was a lot of fun. That's pretty good game day getting two XXs oh, in in the same absolutely. day. Absolutely, yeah. that's great. Played a fair bit of code names last couple of weekends with the fam. I've already made the list and I uh, started working on the cards, but I'm going to make a oversized copy of code names for HeavyCon. But all the words on the cards are heavy game related. Oh, nice! Yeah, I think. That's Boy, cool. all you're doing is pissing off listeners before you leave. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Hey, Appreciate it. You better come to next heavy con then. Hey, the but invites yeah. have been open. I just think that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh yeah. I played uh, SNCF the Netherlands, the the map that Martin sent over, and uh, it's very very small. Plays really quick, like 15 minutes. It's over because uh, it. It has this bankruptcy mechanic in it that's just devastating to three of the six companies in the game. And it's kind of like, in my opinion, it's kind of the northern Pacific of SNCF, i.e. It's, it's short and it's kind of like a social experiment as well as a game. It's like, <laughs> who's going to screw who? You know? So it's, uh, it was pretty interesting. And uh, SNCF Iberia, got to play that map. Uh, Chad got a bunch of those, or he acquired some SNCF maps. He acquired Iberia and Germany. I haven't played the Germany one. I need to play that, and I need to play Martin's Columbia map. Yeah, I haven't played any of those except for the, the Mars and the Moon. Yeah, I haven't played any of those SNCF maps you mentioned, and I yeah, I need to, please. The Iberia map is cool. It's kind of just really the France map all done over again with uh, a kind of neat mechanic about crossing the borders, but hmm. whatever. It's, you know, forgettable. Uh, yeah uh zaltag we talked about that seven wonders the full game and seven wonders duel which do you like better i'm curious probably duel just because it's over quicker (laughs) bringing endorsement yeah (laughs) 
go pick up a copy of Seven Wonders Duel. It's over faster than Seven Wonders. No, they're they're cool games. I you know like when Seven Wonders came out, our family just played the death out of it, and so like I'm sick of it. So that was the first time we played Seven Wonders in a long time. And Duel, I get the flavor of it, and uh, Robin loves it. And it's, it is a very very cool game, and uh, so that hits the table a lot around here on school nights Scoville was the last one uh family play of that uh on sunday of this week nice are you still enjoying it whatever i i kind of played with robin because i just don't want to play that five player four player oh, man. <laughs> yeah four player is bad enough you know although you do have the little player aid things that you made the little cards that show okay between these two peppers yeah. you're going to get a green one or a blue one or whatever yeah if you're familiar with scoville when you plant two peppers next to each other when you move your meeple in between them you get a pepper of a certain color and you always have to look at the charts and everything so we made little counters to put down and stuff like that and it really speeds the game along a necessary thing in my opinion edward um have you played anything that uh amanda and i haven't spoken of Uh, a few things but not many uh first off getting back to age of steam played what is my favorite map called soul train it's a ted allspot map and this thing was incredible i'm so bummed i had to miss it i know Uh, so so in the cubes represent souls and they start in hell then you have to transport them up to Earth in which where, whatever city they get uh, delivered to, they stay in that city until there's only 10 souls left in hell. And then those are, you know, those stay in for infinity in hell. Then you visit, you, you count up the track in hell and then clear off the hell map, flip it over and move it to the top of the Earth map. And on the backside is heaven. And then you have two turns to move that up into heaven. And it was just such a mind screw and just absolutely amazing and just awesome. It, we played it, uh, I want to say it was a five, yeah, it was a five player game. And at the end, there were four of us that nobody knew who, who won it. We, we did know who wasn't going to win, but between the four of us, it was really tight and it was just phenomenal. So I'm excited to play that some more. Cool. A couple of others. Uh, Jiraku, which is a very unique trick-taking area majority game. I've never seen those two mechanics put together. A trick-taking game with a board that's area majority. It was released last year at Essen. And honestly, the reason I picked it up is because the artwork looked gorgeous. just so happens that it's a pretty wicked, pretty clever little little game there so a step up from filler but still a short game really cool uh the climbers you know that filler game yeah the climbers it, yes filler lastly amanda and i had a double date with a couple of friends of ours matt and dana up in fort collins went out for some amazing vietnamese food and then afterwards we met up with some friends of ours mark from board game corner as well as anna and ben and we also ran into Tim Fowers, the, the designer of Burgle Brothers. Let's face it, Burgle Brothers really isn't our cup of tea. But he had a prototype up there that's a really simple, clever, tension-filled deduction game that's going to be the follow-up to Burgle Brothers. And I got to say, for a little 10 to 15 minute filler... That was a pretty clever little game. I told Amanda, Tim asked, hey, you want to play? It'll take five, ten minutes. I was like, sure. 
do you mind, Amanda? And she's like, no, go for it. Okay. Three games later and an hour and a half later of talking and and BSing with everything, it was a pretty fun game. And then Tim gave us the prototype. So that was cool. So that's it. That's all I've been playing other than the stuff you guys mentioned. If you were at BGGCon last year, there's no doubt that you noticed the gaming tables up at the front of the main gaming hall. Some of you may have even had the opportunity to play on one of the tables. I was, and after playing on one, I had a very hard time going back to a normal table. Everything from the convenient cup holders to how easily and comfortably my arms rested on the rail made me want my own. Those tables were from BoardGameTables.com. The company is run by a friend of the show, Chad Deshawn. Do us a favor and head on over to BoardGameTables.com and take a look at all of the ways you can customize your own gaming table, from the size, type of wood, all the way down to how many cup holders you want. African Mahogany, Carrington Stain, Navy Top, four slide-out cup holders. That's my dream gaming table. What's yours? You don't need a gaming table, but wouldn't it be fun to have your own? Check out BoardGameTables.com to begin creating your own table and let them know Heavy Cardboard sent you. All right, be, just before Amanda joined Heavy Cardboard, unfortunately, because she would have had a ball in there with us, but we got the chance to sit down and talk with Vital Lacerda, very famous designer in the world from Portugal. We present our interview with Vital Lacerda. Hey, listeners, we're very, very excited and pleased to welcome Vital Lacerda to Heavy Cardboard. Welcome, Vital. Hi, guys. Thank you for inviting me. It is a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Well, uh, before we get going, I, I just want to say that um, of of your designs that I've played, that uh, Kanban, man, that is my, my favorite. I really, really enjoy that game. It gives me a lot of fun. There's a lot of pressure I feel during the game, and I feel like I'm actually um, succeeding at making accomplishments when I actually do succeed in making accomplishments. And I think everything fits together so well. It's just got that one worker I just wanted to start by saying that's my favorite, favorite design combo. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, it was a game that took me a long time to, to finish. So, and many people uh, participate in, in it. So I, I didn't uh, create it alone. So many people were involved in the design of the game. So, and I can say that I love it too. <laughs> so. <laughs> See, and for me, my favorite now, don't get me wrong, I am a big fan of Kanban, but of all your designs, far and away, my number one game of yours is, is Venus. Really? Oh, cool. Yeah, absolutely it is. So you need to try the new the new version because I feel that this new version is better than the other one. So And we'll get into that here we in have, a little bit. We absolutely. Have we have some questions. Oh, uh, cool. Because I I have been apprehensive. I think, about the new version. So I'm curious to get your take on it here in a little bit. Yeah, many people is because I, I think the problem was the, 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 the word streamlined because when I say streamlined, people think that, okay, streamlined, so you are tooking everything in the game to make a game much more simpler to uh, newcomers. And in part, is is all right, is right, but... What I try to do with this version is to improve it after five or six years of playtesting from people around the world. The game had more than 4,000 plays, and I received a lot of feedback. Our community in BGG 
is really cool because I, I receive emails about my games almost every day. So I hear and uh, of course I try to, to, to make the best things uh, to the games uh, that I still love <laughs> and I keep playing. I, I still keep playing all my games. All right. So a little background first. Uh, so what brought you into games in general, just not even talking designer, just what brought you into the hobby? And are there is there a certain game that kind of was what began everything for you? I always loved games, since video games to, 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 to uh, tabletop games. I played Monopoly and whatever, and Cluedo and what everybody played. I was, uh, I, I played a lot of Magic the Gathering too, and I, it, it's a funny story. When I start to play these modern games or uh, Euro games, that is my style of play, the, I had, uh, I visit a lot, a couple, a friend of, my, a friend of mine and from my girlfriend at the time, uh, that uh, we played a lot of Mahjong, but with the real rules, not the Mahjong from the computer, so Mahjong <laughs> in, in the right. tabletop. And after, I don't know, two years playing Mahjong, and <laughs> that's the only game we, we knew at the time, uh, I start looking at uh, more things, different things in the, in, in the internet. And of course, I, I found BGG, and <laughs> it was a completely new world to, that opens to me and to, to them too. So we start playing new things like uh, uh, Puerto Rico. I think it was my first game. Uh, Settlers of Catan, uh, of Catan, um, Tigris Euphrates. I always liked uh, a little bit more heavy games, so I start to search uh, to to search for uh, Kalos, um, uh, Imperial, some designs from Mark Gurks, and I discover Martin Wallace. So I become a fan of Martin Wallace. <laughs> I never stopped with heavy games <laughs> from from there. Excellent. Do you have a current favorite game or, or a favorite theme? Martin Wallace is Brass. Brass, oh. Excellent taste. Brass um, <clears throat> will be republished right now. I, you, you know that for sure. And I was contacted by the publisher because I have logged more than 80 tabletop games in Brass. And I played more than 200 games online. So he asked me for some changings he wanted to do. And I was very happy to, to hear that because he's asked me something for my, perfect, my, uh, my favorite game and from my master. So <laughs> I was very pleased to, to hear about it. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever met or talked uh, talk shop, so to speak, with Martin Wallace? Yeah, I played tested with Martin Wallace. No, it was one of my my peaks of my career in game design. Was <laughs> in the table with Paul Soldad, Martin Wallace, and Mark Gertz. We playtested CO2. Oh, wow. I have a picture in BGG with them in the table. So, very cool. That's a heck of a table yeah, right there, man. It was. It was. And uh, after the playtesting, we talked about the game about, I don't know, one, two hours. Martin Wallace really knew about the, the, the subject. And... After the after it, uh, it was in Leiriacon. After it, I arrive home. I uh, set up the game in my table in the dinner table, and during 50, 15 days, I changed the game completely. 
it was another game after it, after they had playtested. I think it was one of the best playtests I had in my life <laughs> until now. Very, very cool. Very yeah. cool. That's that's an awesome story, man. That must have been a great experience. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. I was so pleased for to 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 play it, and that is one of the reasons I really love CO two. Not for the game, but for the experience I had playtesting the game before it releases. When you're uh, when you're playing games, is there anything um, that you dislike in games? You know, like. I'm famous for not liking a lot of random dice mechanics. Is there is there anything about games that uh, that don't attract you? I don't like random mechanics. <laughs> I really don't like. Yeah. I don't like. Uh, I don't like rolling dice. Uh, I love. I love to to plan. I, I really love to plan, and um, I like strategic games, of course. But um, when the game shows me something that is completely random and I cannot have control. I <laughs> usually I hate the game, but uh, yeah, there is no not many games Kindred that I spirits. play that that happens. Usually I choose the games I played uh, for the strategy and the planning. Okay, but um, sometimes you play games that. Uh, they are not that good, so <laughs> you have surprises sometimes. But it's I usually play every game, a lot of games, because I need to learn about mechanics and what is made and what is good and bad. So you only know what is bad if you experiment, right? So if you don't try it, you cannot see that it's bad or good. So. Um, Absolutely. So I play everything, but what I really like in the games is uh, the ability of planning ahead. Two, three, I don't know how many. I mean, I'm not good to do it, but I really love it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you sound exactly like us. I mean, to a T. Yeah, hey, we suck at them, but we love yeah, them. Yeah, just, just like me. Well, I tell you what you are good at, and that's designing ways to make it really hard to plan. <laughs> well, that's what I like to do, yeah. <laughs> that's what I like to do. And I think it's a good game because I suck playing my games. I really suck playing my games. And um, sometimes I'm playing games, but I'm not playing. I'm just um, analyzing the games, how the mechanics are working. And uh, that's a problem that I'm having lately <laughs> because of... Uh, my head is always uh, trying to, to, to find new ways or um, another uh, uh, mechanics and another ways to improve my game. So every time I play games lately, I'm always thinking how I can uh, change these mechanics or these mechanics is not that good or I used it is, uh, once or I'd like to use these. I don't think about it. Uh, this is so simple that how can I, I never think about it. So I never concentrate about the game. So lately, I really, my, my ratings are really bad by playing games. What I mean is that my scorings in the late games I played are the worst scorings I have had because I cannot concentrate in just playing the game, okay? Right, you're focusing on, on the actual mechanics and everything else. And what happens, how that was designed, and why the guy designed like this. We do some of that, too. When we're playing games, we're focused kind of on the mechanics sometimes, because we love mechanics of games, and sometimes as part of our analysis of reviewing a game, we're, we're kind of 
I'm playing the mechanics sometimes, and sometimes I'm to try the and game. kind of dissect the game, for lack of yeah. a better way to put it. Constantly analyzing the game and why the team is like that and why the mechanic was implemented like that and not uh, in the other way. Where do you get your inspiration? What inspires Vital to design a game? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> just, just work. craziness. Uh, yeah. Probably, I have a lot of teams that I love, right? So I, I have, in my computer, I place a lot of uh, folders. I open a lot of folders with many ideas. And one day, I think that I will begin to start to, 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 to work in this idea. And uh, I love one of the parts of making games is the research I do before I starting in the mechanics or prototyping. And, uh, for instance, to... to, to to design CO2, I had almost six months on researching about everything around the the the, the global um, global warming, warming and yeah. all that. And um, the same with Kanban. The Kanban uh, I started by um, I, I was uh, watching. Um, about where I found my inspiration, I was watching uh, a Charlo movie. You know that one, I think it calls Modern Times, the one that is uh, working in the factory and uh, is uh, building something. And I thought about it, that I could make a game about um, uh, a factory that builds something. And the idea came out and I saw it in Ford because of the cars. And it was the first to have uh, the um, assembly line. Yeah, right, <laughs> assembly line. And uh, after that, uh, Toyota uh, uh, shows up in the, in the search, and uh, I end up with Kanban. Nice. So it's almost like you went down a rabbit hole of, okay, I want to design something around the manufacturing process. And then you started with, like you said, Ford, and then just kind of went down a rabbit hole and went from there. That's really interesting. I have a lot of uh, work that I began, begin and just are old uh, in the drawing, waiting for me to have time to pick up uh, and keep the work again. <laughs> I can say, you guys, that I'm really filled with work around games, and I'm loving it. I'm really loving it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm living my dream, you know? I work for it oh, that about, fun. yeah, since Vinos, the first one, about 10 years ago. It's already almost 10 years, 9 years ago. And for the first time, I think I'm living my dream because I'm working in games almost at full time right now. That's excellent. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. It's very cool. The Age of Steam Portugal map, that kind of factors into your design um, desires, right? Didn't that, I thought I read somewhere where that um, was a factor in maybe getting you going. Yes. It's, uh, and sparking some interest. It was my first design, right? I was right. I start uh, knowing Martin Wallace and I want to <laughs> to feel how it would be to be Martin Wallace. So <laughs> I designed the <laughs> I, I was playing uh, Age of Steam a lot at that time. So I thought there is no Portugal map and I can see what I can do about it. And I designed it and I love it and my 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 friends start to playing it and the critics were cool. <laughs> I just leave it as a PMP. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, I think everything starts there, yeah. You, uh, you and your fellow Portuguese designers are definitely putting Portugal on the map. 
so to speak there. Huh? <laughs> that was, yeah, but that was one of the reasons that I started to design vineyards. Because in Portugal, our, one of the, uh, the big industries that if you have any big industries, it's uh, wine. Um, and shoes, <laughs> but it's wine. Yeah. <laughs> shoes, I did yes. not know that. All right. um, but uh, yeah, wine is one of the most, most important ones. And I said, uh, I said to to my friends, uh, we are not known in the in the board game uh, industry, so why not making something that happens in Portugal? And I, I, I had just designed the, the Age of Sim Portugal map, and why not have something one game? with a big industry that we have in our country with Portuguese map. But it was a struggle because when I tried to sell the game for the first time, I sent a, a thousand emails to a lot of publishers. And one of them, the Spanish one, accepted, accepted said, yeah, we published Vinhos, but the map must be the Spanish one. So we want wines, but in Spanish, not in, in Portuguese. And uh, yeah, I said, uh, what, what about if you, the, if you do something like uh, power grids, that you have two maps in one side of the, in each side of the, the board? And he said, okay, we can do that. In one side, we place Spanish, and the other side, we place Italy. So... Be like, wait a minute. Yeah, I said, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I don't think so. So, no, but I had luck. The What's Your Game was interested in the uh, a wine game at that time. And uh, I love Mariano because of it. Uh, he gave me the, the, the possibility of uh, releasing my first game. His artwork is fantastic. Yeah, it is. Uh, not only the artwork, but all the game he develops, or the game he develops. Oh, yeah. really? The, the, the games of, uh, of uh, What's Your Game? They are all amazing. I have all of them. <laughs> yeah. I still get the games on them. So you mentioned a, a folder, or several folders on your computer full of ideas and everything. So are those themes or mechanics? What, what comes first in your head? Do you have a theme and then you work it out or the other way? Yeah, you always in the team. Uh, if I don't have the team first, I cannot start making games. Yeah, I, I start with teams. <laughs> I, I told him, I, if you go off of nothing else, just CO2 is the game that tells me that you put theme first. Yeah, because... What attracts me in the game to, uh, to to begin designing a game is really the team, because I want to uh, make a game about some subject that I'm attracted at the time. So, and the mechanics, well, the mechanics I have lots of them that I never use, so I can have uh, almost uh, oh, I don't know ten, twenty mechanics that I can add to the games, but uh, <laughs> doesn't matter, doesn't matter because. What is matter is that the mechanics can transport or can give the team to the people. Because even if the game is very complex and I, I've been criticized about it, I always have an explanation to that mechanics. Okay, people say, ah, it's passed on, I don't understand it. Yeah, probably I did not make the, the, the best job uh, showing that, but in my mind... <laughs> I did it, so... Yeah. This is why you yeah, did I have that, a, right? Everything has a, a reason. reason for that, right? So, as a designer, um, on that note, with theme being first, do you feel the need to innovate, whether that's with unique themes or if that's with uh, new mechanics? Oh, I would love to, to do that in both, right? Mechanics and themes. But uh, it's not easy. <laughs> and 
Uh, I try to do it uh, every day. Uh, I dream with mechanics. I dream with teams. Uh, sometimes I walk at night and I, 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 I sleep with a notebook at the side of my, of my uh, bed. And, but I, I, yeah, I write that and I have it here, but uh, I do that from, uh, for a long time now because I work in advertising before and uh, it's the same process. So, but uh, I, I w would love to innovate every time I do my best, but not every time it's easy to, to make uh, new things. Right. I, I'm thinking I, I can invite something about the teams at least. And I usually make my best to have at least one or two uh, innovative mechanics. But, um, well, you will tell me, guys, right? <laughs> fair, fair <laughs> point. Fair point. On the, on the idea of mechanics, then, your games that feature worker placement, uh, they do so with only a single worker, whereas a lot of different games use multiple workers. Yeah, but it's you, right? It's you. Yeah. Okay, so that, and that's what I was going to ask. Is that a point in the design or is that a product of the design? Like, are you featuring, okay, look, this is you, so you are doing something. Or is it that the game, the way the game played out, it just so happened? That is you. So you are doing something in the game. You are participating. You are the pawn. The galleries, I even designed a new pawn for, for, for represent the player. So, yes. I know that you don't love the game very well, and Edward didn't didn't play it. But oh, I was gonna say I haven't gotten around to it, which I feel guilty because here we are sitting down to talk to you. I played CO two, and I love Vinos. I I love Kanban. Yes, but I just haven't gotten around to the gallery yet, and I feel like I've let you down. I'm sorry. Since Tony didn't like the game, I understand that you don't want to try it, right? So <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I do, I do. Just because he doesn't like it, heck. You take a game like Dominant Species that I love, he can't stand it. So, no, we just because one of us doesn't like it doesn't mean the other won't. I know. There, there are many people that love the galleries and think the galleries is my best game. So And there are people that think CO2 is my best game. So <laughs> you cannot please everybody, right? So I just do what I feel it's right for me and what I like and... Uh, I love all my games. I can say that I love all my games that I made until now. And I hope to keep loving the games I do. So uh, that's what was more important for me because it's easier to me if I do something that I really like uh, to reach the public that like my games. So. When we were reviewing The Gallerist, it really made me think of, um, and The Gallerist is an art-themed game, it really made me think that designing games must be the equivalent, and I'm not an artist, must be the equivalent of creating a painting or a sculpture, creating a work of art. And the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, like one person might think of something as a masterpiece, another person might might not think of it as a masterpiece. Yeah, it's very subjective, right? You can't please everyone. <laughs> I cannot. It was difficult for me to understand that when I designed Vinhos, because it was my first, name, first game, and... Uh, it was my real little baby, right? And I couldn't understand how people didn't like it. But now, after four or five games, I already designed. It's cool. I know that. I just learned <laughs> with the process. It's part of the process. So, yeah. It, yes, it is. Yes, it is. For all artists, including yourself, man. All right. So you seem to be 
very independent when it comes to choosing a publisher. What all goes into, because you've worked with everyone from What's Your Game to Eagle Griffin to Stronghold Games to Z-Man. Exactly, Stronghold. So what goes into you choosing a publisher? Without, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm sure money plays a part in all this, but without getting into too much specifics, but what makes you choose a publisher that you want to work with? What's your game? I didn't choose, right? So <laughs> it was the first game. I send the games to everybody and they want the game, so uh, I keep them. But um, I send games to What's Your Game after them, after it. Uh, I send Kanban to them. I send them, uh, I think, the galleries too. And I, I love the, to, to, to work with them, but I felt that, uh, well, they didn't want Kanban. It was the first time they didn't want Kanban. Uh, Mariano was not keen of the team f after a few times. He worked in the game a little bit, but then he decided that he didn't want the game. And that's, what, that's why I changed another, uh, to another uh, publisher. Right now, what makes me choose and what you want to hear is why I choose Eagle Games to keep working right now with so many games. But, but I can tell you, I can tell you because I, I like to work with autonomy and Eagle Games uh, completely give me uh, all the tools I need to work uh, by myself. They give me complete freedom, freedom to work in any project. And I think you can ask for more, right? Uh, because... I choose my team, Paul Inkao to develop the games. I choose Ian to be the artist. I, I work with Paul Grogan to make the videos. So, uh, and Nathan and Paul Grogan to make the, the rule book. I'm also very involved in all the, the playtesting work, uh, development. I do the rule book. I also do all the 3D pictures you see there. It's made by me. So I'm... Wow full-time almost uh, working in my designs. And uh, Eagle Games provide me totally freedom. And that is what, what I can do. I can ask for more, right? So um, they don't interfere in anything. Of course, they advise, they, they, they think, they tell me that I don't like this or this is not good, but they don't interfere in my work right now. So I completely do what I need and I want to make a good game my way. So I can, that's why I'm doing three games with them already. That makes sense. That, that totally makes sense. I mean, you mentioned the Pauls and, and we're friends with both Paul Inkow and Paul Grogan. And they're very good at what they do. So I understand why you would want to work with them. I want to work with the best guys in the world, right? <laughs> so... Let's uh, let's talk about some new games. You're working on Lisboa. What what can you tell us about Lisboa? Oh, so many things. <laughs> well, Lisboa, it's been an experience because I'm I met a lot of guys from around the world. I'm playtesting a lot with a new uh, platform, Tabletopia, a platform online platform. I never had this experience, and I can say that it's been awesome. I'm meeting people around the world. I'm playtesting in tables with a German guy, uh, uh, Uruguayan, an American, and all of them are completely different in, in thinking about the same game. It's very cool to observe how the different uh, cultures play in the same table, and you can get results, amazing results about the, if the, the things work or not. 
playtesting Lisboa like this is being amazing. Of course, I, I, I keep playtesting live because it's not the same yeah. thing. You can try online, you can try uh, mechanics or uh, a change that you made, but you cannot see uh, the expressions of people playing or how the people feel. It's very difficult to, de- to, to, to understand that online. And this is one essential part uh, to playtesting a game, is to see how people react. Is it, uh, is, do you feel it's a very heavy game, a complex game? Is it lighter? It's the same of my other games, right? <laughs> so since e- uh, Eagle Game gives me completely autonomy, I'm doing what I do best or I like to do. So uh, it, it, I think it's the same. Is there one worker? No, it's not a work placement. It's uh, you play cards, so it's a deck. It's not a deck builder. It's um, a card drafting game. You play cards, and you have a characters. The game is about uh, the team of the game. Uh, it's about my town after an earthquake that destroyed de- uh, destroyed completely Lisbon. Many people die, and one guy that was Marquis de Pombal, that was the first minister, and rebuilds the city. The city was in panic because it's completely destroyed. The king was afraid because he thought that was uh, God that makes uh, what happened. And he ran away completely and gave total uh, powers to uh, Marquis to rebuild the city. What happens in the game is that it's essentially a city-building game uh, where you use cards to... um, get favors of these characters, the most important characters, the king, the marquis, and the builder. It was a guy named Manel de Maia. It was the engineering of the kingdom at that time that starts to um, gather the architects and design the new Lisbon. The ideas of the marquis at that time was very impressive because he was living in London and he, bring, he brought new ideas to Portugal about illuminism and um, uh, commerce because in Portugal we, have, we had so, many, so, so much gold from the Brazil that nobody works right. at that time. So we just spend wow. and spend and spend. Nobody knows about work. And after the castle, the, the, after the earthquake, people start work because <laughs> there is nothing. You, you had to, to, to do, rebuild right? the city. Right? So exactly. the gold keep go, keep coming from Brazil, and it was used to to rebuild the city. But um, we have to establish commerce and uh, uh, business, and the game is also about it. So you are opening right the, your stores. And you have, it's a part, the economic part of the game. And that sounds right up our alley. I imagine there's uh, plenty of opportunity for planning. Yeah, you have a lot because <laughs> you have, like, like uh, the gallerist, you have a new uh, mechanics that is the follow mechanics. It's not like the gallerist, but let's say a little bit like um, Glory to Rome, where one guy play one card and everybody can follow that same action. Well, the mechanics right. is almost like this, and I'm struggling with that mechanic yet, but it's working. So you use the, uh, other players' opportunity. Since the cards are always in your tableau, are uh, at the side of everybody, you can see that there's that guy will play that card, so I will um, be prepared to, to follow his, his plan. It has different periods, with the cards more powerful for period to period. The best guy wins the guys with more wigs at the end of the game will win the game so <laughs> i choose the wigs because it is a funny thing that in the 18th century they like to show to everybody 
the guy with the biggest wig is the most important one in, 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 oh, yeah. in the, that time. So, and one of the playtesters is one of your friends that you know well. It is uh, Nils Yurdal. Yeah, he's playtesting a lot yeah. and discussing a lot of new ideas with them. He's good people. Another guy is one guy from Uruguay, that is Julian Pombo. You don't know him, but. Uh, we have been playtesting and discussing almost every day, almost every day about the game for about a year already. I started the game, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, probably. But uh, I stopped wow. it dur during a time to develop another game. But and I pick it up again two years ago and uh, at full time almost uh, one year. I hope the game is ready to release at Essen this year. Oh, good. Okay. I'll, I'll be there to pick it up then. <laughs> Two copies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You had talked about revisiting old games, and now you get the new edition of Vinos. Uh, yes. It's currently on Kickstarter, although by the time this airs, it may have ended by then. But nonetheless, and we, we briefly touched on this a little bit earlier about how the streamlining uh, to a lot of people means simplifying what brought what brought this on in the whole revisiting of older games i heard many comments about what's happened with Vinus, why it's complicated to explain to newcomers and i don't play this game because it's very too complicated to explain and that was my uh, first focus it was to simplify the explanation of the game but since i i love the game so much i want to have to maintain the same depth of the game well, people saying that I did a good job with it. <laughs> so I hope <laughs> uh, everybody uh, says the same. I took some elements from the game, like the bank, and I simplify a little bit the understanding of the fair. I think the players still have the same problems that they face in, in the, the, the old game or in the, the first game. And the difficult to get the right decision uh, is still there in the same manner than the old game. I changed a few mechanics and I simplified. I, I can say one, for instance. Do you know that, do you remember, if you know Vinus, do you remember when you you, you just uh, go to, to, to the magnets and you discard the wine to get to move a barrel and to get an, uh, uh, an extraction, right? And you do that uh, mini game there. What I did now is that you have exactly the same decisions but I did it to everybody after uh, the fair. So uh, instead of having spaces to move a barrel, I transformed that spaces in tiles that people can, after the fair, make rounds to take the tiles they want to and discarding a wine. And this tile just came to, to next to your playboard. And like you use the experts, if you want to take the extra action, you just flip the, the tile and take the extra action. So, it's exactly the same thing, but much uh, easier to explain. You just say the, play, the, 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 the player just flip the tile and you take the extra action. So More or less cleaning up yes, is, is what you're what saying. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The fair is the same. For instance, uh, before you go to the fair, you have to have some calculations about how much the features worth. And uh, I send a wine that worth uh, eight points, but now because the features, the wine will uh, increase only 10 points. There is some complication there. So what I did now, is just, I'm sending the wine that worth weight, I get eight fair points. But the decision is the same, <laughs> exactly the same. And sometimes 
changing these mechanics, I realized that the tension of the new mechanics could increase a little bit uh, um, related to the other uh, action, to the to the other game. For instance, when you go to the fair to buy the extra actions, everybody is doing and everybody is looking for the tiles, and I want that tile, and everybody wants the same tile. So, being the first to to choose the style is very important in that case, and this is something that. Uh, is very cool now and didn't exist in the last game. So you are just think, playing a little bit different of the same game. But the decisions, I think, okay. are the same. Do you have any interest then, potentially, in going back and revisiting some of your other games? CO2, for instance. Do you have anything that's kicking around in yes, your I head have. regarding that? <laughs> <laughs> I have. Geokix also asked me for a deluxe version of, Geo, of the CO2, but I'm not in that, uh, right now, I'm not in that uh, direction. But I thought about a card game on CO2 uh, that can be cool, an hour card game. And I'm thinking uh, a lot about... Um, Later, I must talk before with Strongholds to see what we can do with Kanban. But, of course, I want to revisit all the games because I know that I can improve it. You will see after you play <laughs> these new venues. Many, many of my friends and playtesters tell me that they will not back to, to play the old version. Interesting, because uh, I'll be honest, I've been a hard sell. I, have, I love the original Vino so much that... I I I felt that it was unnecessary that you do this. However, I am willing to go into it with an yeah, open mind. Yeah, you should try. Yeah, go and you are playing another game, okay? Just think about it. You are playing Vinus, but a new game of Vinus. Right. Don't don't judge it against old Vinus. Yeah. Judge it. Playing the old Vinus is there. I didn't change anything about the old Vinus. That's why I love the game so much. I keep it as it is. Keep the original and make a new one. And what it was, what I did. Well, let's um, let's wrap up. We've got a couple of fun questions for you. Hopefully fun questions. One is, what is your favorite uh, Portuguese food and drink? I, I'm imagining wine for the drink, but uh, I don't know. Wine for the drink. No, I love beer. I really love it. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have good beers. We have two, two brands in Portugal, Sagres and Superbock, that have really good beer here. And I love beer. <laughs> I really love beer. Of course, I love wine nice. also. But, uh, what, about, uh, what about food? What's your be- favorite Portuguese food? I really like a steak with uh, fries. <laughs> really simple kind. <laughs> a good beer in the, in, the, in the summer with a good steak and fries, it's my favorite. Uh, uh, right on. Yeah. But yes, we in Portugal have very good food. You have strange food also because you have cozido à portuguesa. It's, uh, I don't know how to call it in English, it's um, slow. My wife is, is telling me something about it, but I cannot find the word because what you, what you do is you, you, you pick up, uh, place a lot of uh, meat in the, in the, in the, in the, in the recipient. Oh, like a slow cooker? Slow cooker, right, right, right. It's a Portuguese slow cooker where you, you have uh, oh. cowrie, where you have a lot of meats, different meats, uh, cow meats, pork, a lot of things, and it's slow cooking. So it's a very mm. cool Portuguese um, food that uh, improves with time. So if you eat it in the next day, it's better. <laughs> right? All right. So 
sticking with Portugal. Okay. They, you may know a couple of uh, guys by the name of Nuno and yeah, Paulo I know and them. Gil. And I've been with them a few days ago. Other than playtesting and like at Lyricon, do you guys play games together regularly? And do you have any any desire or any want or any plans to try and design a game together? Well, we don't live next to each other, right? So they live in Leiria, I'm living in Lisboa. It's... 200 kilometers in distance, uh, 150, 200 okay. kilometers. But they organize once a month, sometimes, not every month, but they organize a meeting where we play games together. Uh, oh, I've been missing that, that meeting already because I don't go there for about a year or two, but uh, they, they keep doing it. And if I want to, <laughs> I can go. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, no time to do it uh, right now. To design a game together, oh, I think it will be very difficult because they are a group of designers they design in Leiria. So, and it's very difficult to to go there to design something with them and come back again. Okay, so yeah. not enough collaboration. No, gotcha. No, because we need it in the design, right? They are um, brother-in-laws together, so they meet together all day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did not know that. All right. Very cool. All right. But uh, they, they start work with uh, What's Your Game one year after me uh, because oh, okay. um, What's Your Game Mariano, the owner of What's Your Game, um, shows up in Leiria Con to show me Vinho and uh, we meet all together and they start to invite him to go here, there every year. So, and I saw Mariano a few days ago in Leiria. Eventually, I would like to make it over there to. Yeah, to you should go Leiria because con. it is a great con. It is. Yeah. I, I think it's the best con you have in Portugal. But you know, you are only three hundred players <laughs> in our country. No more than that. <laughs> it's a bit of a plane ride. I know. <laughs> you are a little <laughs> bit far away, right? Eight hours. A little off. bit. Like we, like we invited you to heavy. Yeah, I, I'd and love so to go going there. the other way. It's a little bit and tough. I, I just know New York. I don't know any part of America. So I hope to. I hope to one day. Yeah. Well, now that I'm working with uh, Eagle Games, they are from Arizona, I think. Maybe I go there one day. So you can stop in Denver. Yeah, we can Denver's show you not hospitality. Far from yeah, well, maybe maybe we can <laughs> meet in BGGCon or something like that. That would be fantastic. Or in yours, HeavyCon, right? That's right. That would be great. To wrap it up, I just want to say uh, thanks from all of us, Heavy Cardboard, the gaming community. You've, you've provided so many hours of pleasure. It's really, oh, really thank appreciated. You very much. Thank you for all you do. and. Please keep it up, man. Yeah, I do. I do because hearing what you are saying, it's why I design games, right? I hope you keep keep playing them, right? <laughs> Go and keep reviewing them and say what you think it's best. And Tony, I have an advice for you. Just play Gallerist again <laughs> because... Okay. <laughs> I am going to... I will teach Edward yeah, to play. Yeah, because what I heard about you say the game, you didn't get the game. I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Fair statement, and maybe you are correct, sir. Yeah, the game is it's much more than just selling developments and, uh, oh, sorry, what you said, buying, develop, and yeah, selling, right? It's yes, a little yes. bit more than that. <laughs> if right, it was only right. that, it not uh, take me three years to develop. <laughs> <laughs> I stand chastised, my but, friend. Of course, you, you, you were sincere. 
hopefully when uh, when Lisboa comes out, we can have you back on the show. Yes, I hope so. Thank you very much for inviting me and to having me here. It was nice to meet you guys. Wow, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. That really, he's a cool I enjoyed dude. that. He's a cool. He dude. is, and that that was a pretty awesome story about him and Martin Wallace. That that must have been surreal for him. I don't understand why he's giving me hell about uh, the gallerist. I do now. <laughs> Having played it since that interview, I totally understand it now. Yeah. You you deserve everything you get. Uh, you just drop the notch. <laughs> <laughs> hey hey, you know what? But you're so you got high. one more show. You got one more show, and you're off this thing. <laughs> this is your one show warning, Mister. Yep. <laughs> So, um, curiosity, Amanda, uh, when we interviewed Vital, Ed and I both told him what our favorite creation of his was. What, what is yours, madam? Oh, Kanban by far. Oh, that yeah. Is my, yeah, that's my favorite Vital game for sure. Nice. That's two Kanbans to one uh, Vinos. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it's a, it's a great game. Don't Dude, get me wrong. It's like, I mean, what do you I, like I better, really apples it. or oranges? I love yeah, them both, right? <laughs> exactly. But I'm curious, Amanda, why why Kanban? So the reason why I like Kanban more than anything else is there's a ton of, I mean, yeah, sure, there's a ton of rules and there's a ton of different things that you can do and everything, but it's more intuitive to me than Vinos. There is so much going on in Vinos that I remember the very first time we played it, it was a long time ago, and I think I'm still trying to recover the brain cells that I burned that night. You know, obviously I've grown and I'm much better now, but Kanban definitely is my favorite, the tall game, because I like that there's different things that you can do and it's all easily understandable. You can get your engine and then you can pick the cars that you want to try to make and, you know, just all the different, all that kind of stuff. I just, I like, I like the boardroom and I just, I, yeah. and I like, I like all that. I just, I like that game more. The end. With only having one worker uh, and that board, the first time you look at it, it looks like total chaos. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah. It's, it's the most intimidating board I've ever seen. But once you learn the rules, it, like you said, it becomes very intuitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you understand what's going on, you don't want to die anymore. You want to play. <laughs> so, yeah, a big thanks to Vital uh, again for joining us on the show. And hopefully we can uh, talk to him again in the future. Yeah, hopefully I can talk to him in the future. That would be good. Hey guys, let's talk about auction mechanics then, the feature presentation of tonight's episode. I'm excited and terrified of this. Yes. How could you be terrified, man? Auction mechanics are something we love. No, we love auctions, but man, there are some highbrow folks in the guild that <laughs> when we did the Ask the Elephant, gotta say, there there were some questions that were intimidating. I ain't gonna lie. Here's the key. We're simple folk. We're not gonna get all PhD cerebral, man. We're gonna be <laughs> we're gonna have some fun with a really superlative game mechanic. Agreed. From the real world. Yeah. As you know, most of the time in many of the games that we play. An auction is a sale or an offer to sell some sort of an item or something. And the final sale price is set by the players making increasing bids, in effect determining what the value is and and declaring their right to make that purchase. At the start of the auction, that final price is unknown. Obviously, to get 
to that resolution, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of styles of auction out there in the real world and in our games. I had no idea the number of different types of auctions that I I googled auction types and Wikipedia <laughs> came up and I just kept scrolling and kept scrolling and yeah. kept scrolling. It was crazy. I had no idea there were this many as well. Uh-uh. I was I when we were doing our, our research, just like what you said, Amanda. I was like, uh, yeah. I I don't know a lot of these. And a, and a lot of them, it, it was cool because I didn't know that they had names, you know? Like, I knew of a Dutch auction, but that was about it. The thing that surprised me is there is a science behind auctions. I, I, I think I read the same paper <laughs> you did. <laughs> we, we are not scientists, so we're going to go all caveman and cavewoman here. And we're going to talk about auctions and the things we, we really dig about them and and try to scratch a little deeper than uh, than that upon occasion. We hope you guys are fans of auctions too, and let us know what your favorite kinds of auctions are, what your least favorite kinds of auctions are, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no way to talk about all the different kinds of auctions, and there are many, many variants. So let's just talk about a few that uh, we think have interest to us and perhaps our listeners as well. So let me get the party started here with the famous Dutch auction. As we know, or maybe don't know, a Dutch auction is the kind where the price is set and it's set high, and then the price just starts ticking down. And at some point, somebody's gonna flinch and I'll buy it. Yeah, pull the trigger and okay, me, fine. It's low enough, I'll take it. (laughs) And like Merchants of Amsterdam has that has that little clock in there that is the is the auction ticking down. Tick, 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 tick. And at some point, somebody's going to reach over there and slap that thing and stop it and make a purchase at that price. Now, I've never played Merchants of Amsterdam. I, in fact, I've never seen it. I, I only I only know of the game from preparing for the show. And all I could think of was, man, that's just a jammed finger waiting to have <laughs> yeah. two hands come at it to do that. Um, so, so talking about Dutch auctions... I saw a guy on BGG had a Dutch auction for a copy of Roads and Boats a number of years ago. And he ended up rolling a D6 every day, and that was how much the price dropped. And I thought that was a really, really clever use of a Dutch auction to Very run, interesting. A, run a board game auction. And ironically, it ended up selling for $74, which is hella cheap. But I'm surprised nobody jumped on it before then. But nonetheless, I just thought that was a, a cool real-world implementation. But using it, you know, gamifying it kind of, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Amanda, what do you think the psychology is of a Dutch auction? It's well, it's like you said. It's do I want to let it go one more round and hopefully it'll drop down just a little bit more? Like in XX Games where a lot of the privates will be, that'll be a Dutch auction. You know, so you the very first one, you want to see if maybe it'll get way low and maybe you can get it for almost free. But it's that kind of pins and needles feeling of, oh, crap, if I let it go around one more time, I know Chad's going to grab that. But I really don't want it at that price, but I really don't want him to get it any cheaper. It's just, to me, a Dutch auction really is a mind screw type of auction. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of pressure to pull the trigger. The one thing that I find in almost all these auction types, regardless of what one we talk about, it's all about just anxiety and tension 
and a little bit of frustration, but the good kind of frustration yeah. and just total, like Amanda said, pins and needles. Like, gah, can I wait? Do I need to pull the trigger now? Do do you know? It's just yeah. And that and I feel like outside of really one type of these auctions, all of these have that in common. So the next one on my list is my least favorite kind of auction. I think that's all of... My guess is it's going to be all of our least favorite. Yeah, and I think a lot of listeners too. And I guess from what I found, the official name would be like a first price sealed bid auction. I.e. it's a secret bid, high bid wins. I.e. blind bidding. Right. I just don't... I just don't like that. I want to know what's going on. I don't want to have to try to read my opponent and try to guess what he might be bidding i just i i don't like that at all i i think it's a really poor way of determining true value uh which is the whole point of an auction is the value of something determining the value and in blind bidding it's almost just luck to a sense and it impart it imparts that which as folks know listeners of the show know none of us are super keen on the idea of introducing luck Randomness, fine. Luck, not so much. What do you think, T? It's a very inefficient auction, I think, too, because people will think a long time about what their opponents might value it at, and it's definitely prone to people overpaying. I know that you know that I know that you know mm-hmm. type thing. And then it's like, oh, crap, I could have got that for 20 less. You know, well. But I think one of the things, psychology-wise, that this kind of an auction puts into our heads is it makes me consider... The cost of not winning this as much as the cost of winning this. Oh, that's well put. I yeah. agree with that. It's a very interesting way to look at it. I hadn't looked at it that way before. I'm not sure. And maybe that's why I don't like it. Because <laughs> 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 now i got to think about what's the value to Edward and Amanda and to Chad and to me. You know, it's like, oh, God. It's much easier when we're just calling out numbers, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, and it's a bit AP-inducing. Right. Because of that reason. Of all the auctions, yeah, it's just my least favorite. I like the whole, you know, mind game with your opponents. I, I That part, I don't mind. It's just the whole sealed bid. Just, okay, we're all going to bid. Put your, put your, you know, your chips in your, in your fist and turn them over and that's how much we get. Well, yeah, I mean, we like the mind game part of it, but I feel like in just about any auction is going to be at least a bit of a mind game. Because it goes everywhere from what I would call like the epic stare down. Whenever it's (laughs) the final two people, you're just staring at each other trying to figure out just exactly how much more are you willing to pay for this type thing. So I don't, just because that's a good part of the blind bidding auction doesn't necessarily, I don't, I don't think it gives it any, (laughs) any good qualities because other ones have that as well. You know, I mentioned that overpayment possibility in blind bids. The Vickery auction is kind of a maybe a, a solution for that at times where uh, the winner would only pay the amount of the second highest bid. Which I think this is genius. I think this is a fantastic idea or mechanic or type of auction, fill in the right word. But I'll be honest, I couldn't think of a game that uses it. And me either. I was just, I literally have in my notes that I don't think I've ever played a game with this type of an auction and I couldn't find one. Yeah, same. What's an example? Well, there's a certain Age of Steam map <laughs> coming out. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, yeah, Tony and I, we when we had our design uh, night 
for a Aegis theme map that he is designing. I'm helping throw some ideas out there. Because it was around the time that we were preparing for this episode, we were discussing Vickery Auctions and, well, it looks like we're going to have one in that. Uh, but I, why is this not used more? I hear you. I can't... I can't think of a, a good reason not to. Again, I don't have the mind of a designer because I have no interest in designing games. But man, this sure seems sexy. But maybe it's a it, it, it's a confusion issue. But well, what do you guys what do you guys think the psychology of of the second highest price is the actual price? My high bid wins the auction, but I pay the second highest bid. What is the psychology? Security, mm-hmm. security, security. Absolutely, because okay, if I know that I'm willing to pay, say, $5 for, you know, whatever it is we're bidding on. If I bid 7 there's a reasonable chance, or even 6 I can, quote-unquote, overpay for, for an item. But it's with that security of not having to worry that I'm overpaying. It's overpaying without overpaying. I know that sounds stupid, but that's, that's what I mean by security. It makes sense, absolutely. But you're not the only person that knows that, right? I think from a seller standpoint, this is a fantastic auction because my buyers know, hey, bid high. I only have to pay the second highest. Now you got two two people saying that, three people saying that. Holy crap. So the the person that's bidding may be like, oh, I'll do 200 and there's no way I'll have to pay that much. But oh, crap. What if the next person, the next lowest bid is 150 because they thought, oh, well, there's no way. So, you know, it can be a trickle-down effect to where you thought you're going to get something for super-duper cheap, but in actuality, you had to pay a lot more than you were even willing to just because you opened your big fat mouth. <laughs> it's almost like a false security then, actually, now that you guys bring that up. Because I was looking at it from a buyer standpoint, and when you look at it from the seller standpoint, if you have multiple buyers sitting on that or thinking the same thing all of a sudden it's over inflated prices and it's it's just the bottom falls out and you're like oh my god what did i just do i bid 10 but it's only worth five i just thought no one would be an idiot to bid higher than that exactly exactly what do you think about this is goa a vickery auction or at least a variant because as the auctioneer in goa i have the option of paying the high bid in effect i don't have to bid higher I'm effectively paying the second bid. I don't think so because of the fact that you're not buying it for the second price because you're just matching the yeah. highest. That's like Noah Hymet, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, that's so I, I and I don't consider Noah Hymet a Vickery auction at all because the the auctioneer has the right to purchase just for the for the highest bid. So no, I I don't think so. Seriously, I am very curious. For all our listeners, especially those designers or wannabe designers out there, why isn't there? There's got to be a reason. There's no Vickery auctions, at least in mainstream, there's none. I wonder if it's a, yeah, I just, I wonder why. You know, my, my, I think this is my favorite kind of auction. The fixed price auction, for lack of a better word, like in a game like Container or Key Harvest or one of the types of auctions in modern art, it's, I, here, Here is this thing. I am selling it for five. Edward, would you like to buy it? No. Amanda, would you like to buy it? Yes. I guess, I mean, technically, I guess it's a type of auction, but it just, it doesn't feel like one to me. Heck yeah, man. It's the it's the same kind of auction as, uh, it's the reverse of a Dutch auction. Instead of the price going down, I, like I set a price on it. Well, and the first one to claim it gets it. Yeah, so like if it's a container, I'm selling 
white con- white containers for five bucks. But to me, it just that doesn't feel like an auction per se. It feels like, hey, I'm putting this up for sale. Do you want to buy it? But then you sell white cubes for four dollars. That's true. That's a good point. It's kind of like an auction, like a really long auction with everyone at the table. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a quick, fast and in a hurry auction like normal. But I do feel like a marketplace is kind of a variation on an auction. I could see it. I, from that standpoint, it, it it's more. I feel like it's more of a market than an auction. But then again, I guess markets technically are auctions. You either pass or bid. Right, and then maybe I have to lower my price. So I, I, I mean, to bring it into the real world, you go to the grocery store, right, and you see eggs. If nobody's buying eggs because they're twelve dollars a dozen, well, odds are the store is going to have to lower their price. So everyone's passed, and then they keep passing, and the 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 store keeps lowering the price until they get it, until people start bidding, and when they bid. That's the price. I'm not saying that's how it works, but I could at least see that as being termed an auction. As an interesting way to look at it, because I never really would have thought of container as an auction. I wouldn't have thought of putting the white containers up for $5 and then Chad putting them up for 4 To me, that's just a market. I would have never even made the connection that that might be construed as an auction. But can you now? Absolutely, which is very interesting. Curious as to what the guild has to say about markets yeah. as a form of auction. Yes, me I'm too. I'm not saying it's an auction, but is it is it a variant of some sort? You know what I mean? All right, so if we're going to do favorite types of auctions, then I'm going to go with mine, which is, I guess, what you would consider the most standard, I guess, auction format, and that's the Japanese auction, which bidding goes around, uh, the t- you know, round and round and round, and as people drop out, that's it. Once you pass, you're out. You can't come back in. For instance, like uh, the ones in Demacher or any number of other games, drop and you're out. I feel like this is an ideal way to put proper value or get proper value of an item in a game. What do you guys think? Yeah, Japanese auctions are my favorite as well. I like that if you pass, you're out. I don't want people to be able to come back in after they've passed, like in an English auction. I don't want someone to be able to just sit back and be like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll come back in because the price is about where I would have paid anyway. No, if you, no, stay in, stay in. If hmm. you get out, then you're not allowed back. Let me ask you guys, did... Did anybody know this was called the Japanese auction? Uh, no. Nope. <laughs> so so there you go. So a your standard going around the table auction, Japanese auction. So what about you, Tony? Well, what's the psychology of a Japanese auction, do you think? Like I feel like I need to be very precise in my bidding and I mm-hmm. might even have a I might even have a strategy in my bidding and tactics where it's like up by one, up by one, boom, up by five, or you know, depending on circumstances or starting out at a higher number instead of your typical one mm-hmm. right or in some cases right zero let me just knock some competition out right now right and and, the, and this goes back to that whole you know you have those epic stare downs <laughs> right now, now that it's mano e mano okay you just bid 10 are you bidding 10 hoping i will go to 11 or are you bidding 10 thinking i can't afford to go to 11 or that i need to or you know and and that's where that whole mind screw comes in and that whole metagaming goes in and here you have information to go off of 
much more so than in a blind bidding example. So let me ask you this, though, guys. And if if I'm being an idiot here, tell me. But are once around auctions also considered Japanese auctions? I don't know. I I think it sounds like a variant to me. And I was yeah. gonna I was gonna ask this very same question. Thank you. It's either a variant or honestly a once around auction. Like that's what it's called. I mean, you look at a game like Medici, right? It's once around, right? So the auctioneer says, "Okay, here's what I'm putting up for auction. These these goods. If you're first up, you're in the worst position because you have the least amount of info. So you better bid appropriately because it's not going to come back around." I I have to be honest that I I'm not super keen on the once around, uh, but that's just because I'm bad at them at doing proper evaluations and. And turn order or seating order or your position from the auctioneer is key. Yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. in those cases. It dictates what you can do. Exactly. And I feel like that is something you need to take into effect account. And yeah, but these these two variants of the same auction, the Japanese auction, this is exactly why it's my favorite. Right on. I like it a lot too. But what about the one Amanda doesn't like? English auctions? Come on. The the public outcry auction? <laughs> well, I didn't it's not my it's not a blind bidding auction, but it's not my favorite. It's it but it is my second favorite. Oh, okay. Type of auction. Yeah. The reason why I don't like it like I said before is that if you pass, you can come back in, and I don't like that. I don't like that you can just jump back in. I do because uh, it's a new tactic. It's called lying in wait. It's like like that idiot Dave on Storage Wars. Yep. Yep. <laughs> It's like the bid. I think it's embarrassing that you people know oh, that. Oh, yeah, but like the auction's about to be over, and then boom. Hey, guys, mm-hmm. this auction ain't over. Pony up or get the hell out. And a perfect example of this for me is whenever we go to the local live board game auctions for to purchase board games. I absolutely love in-person, real-life type auctions like this, and I think it's a lot of fun, but uh, I don't... I, Modern art has this, right? That's one of the types yeah. of auctions in modern art, which not my favorite, like you said, but in the real world, it is my favorite. Abs- yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. I think, you know, psychologically, besides the lying in wait, you can really get like a feeding frenzy going on. Oh, absolutely you can. It's funny. Uh, okay, using that real world example. Uh, I've seen games that couldn't get a $10 starting bid, but the same game later on put up for a $1 minimum bid, and you start seeing people feed off of one another and and, and watching it all of a sudden, it sells for 15 whereas you couldn't get 10 out of the last one. I think it's it's absolutely, you get caught up. That's that's the psychology of an English auction right there. Right on. Right on. Let's see. Um, Goa, we talked a little bit about, and Noya Heimat, they have um, a pay the auctioneer kind of a mechanic in their auction. What do you guys think about this? You guys know how I feel about Noya Heimat. Right. What, uh, what, I mean, obviously, so if I'm the auctioneer in this kind of an auction, I'm going to get paid. I may or may not have the option to buy it myself, depending on the game. Right. What, what do you guys think of this mechanic, though? What's, what's its psychology? Uh, as far as the actual psychology, I, I think that's pretty close. That it's 
usually in games like this, it's a closed or semi-closed economy. Right. So the amount of money that's in the game is this is what's in the game. And so it's you're you're not only paying with money, but you're paying in power in that you're the the ability to auction or I'm sorry, the ability to buy future things. I'm handing over my power to to purchase these things over to you so that you can dictate and almost handing over dictatorial power and i i and and that that's it's scary in a sense you know it's scary game wise you know to where like am i just am i giving you too much power well see that that power is what i think drives the psychology of this auction as the auction here depending on where the power is and how much of it i have do I want to sell something that you want so I get the power? Or do I already have enough power to actually sell the thing that I want? Oh, wow. To where you can yeah. match the bid type <laughs> right. thing. Can Very I sell what I want? Or do I have to sell something that you want? Well, not only that, but can you afford not just the actual cash outlay that you'll have to pay? Well, that's the but power. can you afford to... Well, yeah, can you give up that power, right? And I think that's that's... That, in a nutshell, is what what makes Noya Heimat just so devious. Oh, yeah. This next auction mechanic, I don't, I don't know what to call it, man, but it's a game that I know the three of us really, really like. That, that game is Metropolis. I, I call this an unknown lot auction, but it's not um, like, oh, I'm buying a mystery box. It's like every time a player bids, they're bidding for the right to stop the movement of pawns <laughs> and... Have, and be able to claim the piece of uh, territory that they've just put a bid on. I, I think unknown is a is a fair description because... You don't know where it's going to stop. Right. The spaces change. With every time somebody bids, you're now changing what you're bidding on. So my bid is to say, stop here. Stop. This is the one I want. <laughs> stop here. <laughs> and then Amanda says, no, I want this one more than you want that one. And then you say, you know what I mean? Amanda, do you have a term? I don't. That's uh, the Metropolis auction. <laughs> that's what go. that. That's what that one is. There it is. <laughs> it takes. You I know, just coined it. Why didn't I think of that? Why we're so dumb? <laughs> it's a great game. Yeah. Horrible board. Oh my gosh. But yeah. but great game. Yes. One of my favorites is again. I don't know what to call some of these things, but like I'm calling this a limited currency auction. So like in raw. I only have I can only make three bids in in a particular epic, right? I can only make three bids. And I only have currency valued at three different values. I might have a five, a seven, and a twelve. I can only make three bids and with those very with those amounts of currency. Strasbourg by Stefan Feld is a similar thing where I have a deck of cards that represents my currency and on each turn I can play before the game or before the round starts, I can pick a number of cards to play and divide those up into bids so I can decide if I'm gonna make two, three, or four bids during that round and how big those bids will be, but it, it's it's a limited currency. You know, in spiker stat, you only have so many meeples, right? That you know, it's funny, not to go too much on a tangent here, but going through all our prep and everything, I had no idea where to put spiker stat. Because it's such an awesome little auction game, yeah. but I was like, I don't, I, I don't know. But when you think about it, with the meeples as currency, I could see that. 
that makes a lot of sense. So limited currency makes sense it to me. It does to me too, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I've only played Raw once, um, and I thought it was cool. Um, I, I think there are other better pure auction games, Medici, Modern Art, uh, as examples. All Canizias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but Strasbourg is is really fun as well in a sense that like exactly what you said that it's you you have a fixed amount of currency and I have to bid on all these things. How am I going to distribute? For me, like the psychology of that kind of an auction is I'm going hunting. I only have this many bullets. There's a crap ton of elk out there. Which ones will I shoot at? Or <laughs> I don't hunt, but you know, like that kind of a thing. What, what do you think? It's like, it's, so it's, it becomes a timing or an opportunity thing. It does. That's very, yeah, it's an interesting point. I just, because like in Raw, don't you, I've only played it once. So don't you, if you bid with like your five or whatever, and the person that actually wins the auction, don't they get that five? If I bid with a five and I won the auction with a five, my five becomes part of the next auction. That's right. That's what it is. Yeah. So it just, it kind of rotates. It's, I think that a limited currency game is cool because you kind of, in, in certain ways, you know exactly what everyone has, or at least you have a good idea because you have just about the same stuff. And so you know that they have this hand of cards of one through 10 or whatever, and you know that they are going to only be able to use those amounts. So it might give you a good kind of base of an idea of what they're going to go after and also what they might not be even wanting to touch at all. Kind of like, honestly, kind of like in Lignum, whenever you pick what area you want to go to, it's not really necessarily an auction, but it does definitely have that kind of feel to it. I hadn't thought of that, but I could see that. But again, that goes into the whole metagaming that is part of what makes auctions so great. Mm -hmm. Okay, I know that you need this wood, but you know that I also need this much food. So are you going to go there or are you going to think that I also need to go there? So we're going to split it. So are you not going to go there and I can go there safely? So it, it, it yeah, I, it, but again, regardless of the type of auction, with the exception of the whole blind bidding part, that whole meta and how many levels deep are we going to go and how many levels deep are you going to go and, am i and yeah i i think it's fantastic uh earlier in the episode we talked about zoltag and a, a low bidder wins kind of an auction you know like for contracts and stuff and i i think that's really cool i really want to find a game like that well i mean you have zoltag well yeah right? but I, you know something of more medium or heavy weight well i, I think of it as like government contracts yeah. right it's going to go to who's going who's going to do this for the cheapest right it's like name that tune that old game show or whatever uh yeah i can name that in one note yeah well good luck buddy <laughs> right exactly but but uh i and i'm sure there are games out there that do this but there just aren't a lot that use this whole low bidder idea again with the whole Government contract is the best way I can describe it. That, I'd never heard of it. I'd never even heard of this type of auction being in a game until you mentioned Zoltag. These designers, they better get on it. Yeah. There's opportunity. But then again, there are some game designers that absolutely hate auctions. We'll get into that, though. Modern Art has a cool uh, twist on auctions where um, occasionally in the game, it's a multi-unit auction. I'm going to sell two pieces of art using one of the other auction types in the game. 
But there, I, I think that's kind of cool because it's like bid early, bid high, bid often because you're getting two. Isn't that just an enhancement of other existing auctions, though? You're just making what you're what you're bidding on more lucrative and more worth more. Yeah. So is the feeling that maybe because it's two pieces that someone will pay more than if they were separate? Is that is that the hope there? Yeah. Okay. It, you know, it could be more impactful if I win this. Oh, because you're getting two. You're guaranteed to get two, right? As opposed to. You're getting one, right. and then maybe you get another later, but right. maybe not. I'm getting two. Okay. Two scoops of ice cream. What about that auction in Vegas Showdown? You guys ever played that? that? Nope. Nope. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, when we were going through this, and I was like, nope, never played it. I don't, nope. I don't even know what to call it, because like, there's all these different things on the board where you can place a bid. There's a number track, so my bid could be... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and I'm going to put my pawn on the six. That means I'm bidding six for that action. So if Amanda wants that action, she could bid seven or or more, and then now she's the high bidder. My guy got displaced, and I have to go bid on something else, including that one. I could displace Amanda in this whole like chain reaction of your high bid displaced me, and I displaced somebody else who did some. You know, it's or. You can just go, okay, now I'm done screwing around with all that. Boom, this is what I really wanted. The the game the game that comes to mind is twentieth century. It has the exact same mechanic in that, you know, oh, I'm going to bid for this less bad card. That's the only only game I've encountered that has that mechanic. And I dig it. It's that whole outbidding and displacement. So maybe displacement bidding? Maybe, man. But, you know, there's a the psych- psychologically, there's some misdirection and, and, and games to be played in that meta, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm going to bid on this. I have no interest on it, but it looks like I do. So I'll let you guys, you know. Fight it out. For, right. Yeah. Force you to, to outbid me. Right. I'm happy to let Amanda pay 11. <laughs> right. Exactly. When, then I can go and actually bid on the thing that I really want. For six. <laughs> right or or maybe i think that you guys are going to think that i'm thinking that so i'm actually going to go to the thing that i just want and you guys aren't going to displace me because you think that's what you i want you to do i love auctions i god dude yeah and what's weird is i used to hate them when we first started really? playing these games playing the hobby why because I, I know the answer to this, but um, uh, I think it'll be a good dis- uh, discussion point. I'm real curious, too, because my wife doesn't really like auctions. I wanted nothing to do with any type of an auction because I was always afraid that I would mess up or make a bad decision. But now, I have to say my absolute favorite part of an auction is when I place a bid and someone else at the table swears. Yeah. Because that means that I did something very, very right. <laughs> And that it might have even been exactly what they were thinking about doing. Or and I, another thing that I think, another reason why I think I used to hate those is because I didn't know how to value anything. Because I had no frame of reference. We had never really played. You don't have auctions really in Monopoly. So that's really all I had ever played. So just, you don't, you don't really know what you're doing at the beginning. My absolute favorite thing is when I'm like, five. Yeah, and I look over it, and I go over. I look over at Chad, and he's like, <sighs> with that voice too. Five. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I just look at five. Ah, because that's exactly what someone else wanted to do, and that always makes me grin like a fool. Have you guys ever played the game spelled 
Y S. Is that East or something like that? Or I don't know. Yes, yes, we have played it, and I really, really like that game. I, I do too, because it's a it's like a partial blind bid. I'm going to put two pawns out there. One of them you're going to see the value. One of them you're not. And I could put them in the same place, different places. It's really cool because we're effectively we're bidding on the different actions, the spaces. I've only played Wise or whatever a couple of times, and I think it was a long time ago when we had first gotten started and I didn't know what I was doing. So I remember not enjoying the game, but I would be willing, definitely willing to try it again. Cool. Now that I've, you know, got a little bit more, know a little bit, little bit more about what I'm doing. And I, I wonder if it's that blind, that partial blind bidding that's that gonna, turns you off. That's going to definitely make me not enjoy it as much, I would imagine. But at least I have some information. Be, because there is some information to go off of, strictly meta, right? In blind bids, it's a game that I, honestly I've been looking for a copy. So yeah, that's I'm a fan. I didn't know about this one. A senior auction. That's that's the auction in Age of Steam. The top two bidders pay their full bid amounts, <laughs> uh, and, but only the highest is the a winner winner. But so second place pays the full amount. That's the senior. That's what a senior auction is. Well, they pit. Yeah, they they will pay whatever they bid, just like an Age of Steam for the turn order and the action selection. But I think psychologically, it's good for the seller because, um, hey, I'm in second place. I've already bid ten. Might as well go twelve. Amanda, like in that game uh, on the Pennsylvania map the other day, we were last in one, and uh, we actually said that to each other. We're like, shoot, we're well, I'm in it this much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're both like, well, we're in it for we're in it for ten. Let's let's keep going. <laughs> right. Reserves in auctions. Um, I was lear- I learned that uh, French lumber <laughs> gets sold in a first price sealed bid um, unknown reserve auction, and so the act the bidders will have some intelligence as to how to maybe calculate what the reserve is based on say previous years or various statistics about the lumber crop but they don't actually know what the reserve is so i have to put in a sealed bid where the high price is going to win but only if it's over the reserve what do you guys think about like reserves in bids and it happens on bgg auctions all the time right? oh yeah that was my first thought was that's a normal practice in bgg auctions or ebay auctions but i think it would be interesting in the auction if for example you know the auctioneer puts it up for x amount and their reserve is y and no one gets to y would it would that amount be known i guess it would have to be because the person could just could lie and say that that wasn't their their reserve price or whatever but or it would be i don't know if it would be more interesting to pay the game if you don't hit the reserve does that mean that it just doesn't sell period if it's the game that's putting something up for auction or does that mean that if the auctioneer person is if the player is putting it up for auction and it doesn't hit the reserve does that mean that they can pay below that reserve in order to keep it well this is this is a lot like what eBay is right with reserve auctions hidden reserve reserve not met for the most part people don't like that on BGG auctions, where I'm super active, or at least used to be, um, that was extremely frowned upon, uh, the whole hidden reserve idea, because people want to know what they're bidding against. Okay, if the reserve's 20, fine, I'll start it at 20, whatever. Let's quit with the with the uh, the foreplay, and let's just get into the auction. Um, 
so it seems as a whole they're generally frowned upon for the 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 hidden reserve and then you'd also get into soft reserves and hard reserves as well so if it does if the if it's if an item's being put up by the player in the game and they have a soft reserve of five and the highest bid that the, uh, that someone else at the table is will, willing to go is say three since they have that soft reserve they have the leeway of saying okay fine i'll take the three or right, they can say right or they could say no it was five let me throw this one at you one of these french companies has a random reserve in their auction oh my gosh a, com- a computer will determine what the reserve is from auction to auction to auction. And but there is there a fixed range? I, I don't know. I didn't dive I would that hope deep. So. But this is but it an sounded real crazy. world thing. Absolutely, right? dude. Serious, like millions and millions and millions of dollars changes hands. Wow, <laughs> that's bizarre. It has to be a range or some kind yeah. of fancy algorithm mm-hmm. set for that. But that's really interesting that to hear. Real world application like that. So last one, a reverse auction, like in No Thanks or in a Bandu variant, where I'm paying not to buy it. And those are the two games that come to mind Mm -hmm. for that. Yeah, Bandu's really fun for that because you can have your big pile of gems that you really don't want to have to pay, but... Man, that egg really is not going to go on top Uh -uh. of your little stick that you just got, so you really need to just (laughs) pony up that pony up that cast and not have to worry about trying to make it fit it's like the reverse of a dutch auction at some point it's worth it for me to take it can i take it now (laughs) do i have to take it now or can it go one more round and get richer right (laughs) right either that or hopefully get somebody else stuck with it all right so let's roll into things we like about auction games like what do we like about auctions in games dynamic gameplay just the players set the value of what things are worth in a game and it can vary from game to game it could gain it varies player to player or group to group and how is that not something to encourage and to be excited about and to want in a game right yeah absolutely it just it feels like that most auction games you're not ever going to have the exact same result every time you play the game i mean it'd be i would figure it'd be kind of rare to have two games ever play the same especially if you're playing with different people i think part of that dynamic gameplay is competition this is going to tie into something that's not good about auctions and games but that french lumber company they sell 85 percent of the lumber they make in auctions of that kind that we described if they have three bidders 50 percent of the auctions end in no sale because the reserve was not met but if they have four, five, six, when they have six bidders, literally 0% of their auctions fail because of the reserve. So it's like competition is driving the, the, the price up. It's that whole getting caught up in yeah. feeding frenzy mentality. It's Absolutely. The group, the yeah. group, that makes sense. The group think, yeah. And, you know, the flip side of that is auctions might not be a good thing with three-player games. You know, so we'll, we'll, come, to, we'll come to that. But I, but I really dig the competition. And auctions are easy. They're simple. Everyone understands them. If you pay the most, you won. It's or what's under, it's, it's what's under it's that that's hard. <laughs> right, unless, unless it's, it's a victory. <laughs> if you pay the most, you get to pay the second most. But, you know, it's what's under that statement is what's so hard about an auction. And I, I, I love the stress or tension. maybe tension. Yeah, mm-hmm. tension would be a better word. Right. Uh, it's like a game of chicken. 
and using what you know against your opponents, like in Demacher, I know that you can't afford for me to publish a bad opinion poll. So you have to win that. And I know that you need to win that so that you don't take the risk of me publishing it. And using that all against you and just the, can I bid a little bit more and force you? Or maybe you just, I, I'm, I barely put it out of your price range. It's just a constant tension that just doesn't let up. And just again with, you know, the epic stare downs when it's the last two players. That's always a lot of fun, <laughs> just to try to scare someone out of bidding more. Well, those things you guys are talking about, auctions are not just a way of acquiring something. They're an actual tool to use in the game against your opponents. Totally. I mean, that, we talked about that plenty, about the whole, you know, using money as power. Even if you're not trying to win it, you're making, you're causing your opponent to spend more of their power. Mm-hmm. Money is power in most auction games. Not all, but in most. And I think that's, like you said, it's a tool to wield or, or a weapon to wield. Yes. And even sometimes you can make make someone pay way more than they really wanted to just because they got caught up in it. And then that makes them uncomfortable for the rest of that round, which is only <laughs> good for everybody else at the table. <laughs> or specifically you. Right. You know, hopefully. Right. And, I mean, okay, let's... People say a lot of Euros don't have much player interaction. I mean, can you can you have more interaction than in a in an auction? It, it forces people that, those of us, I will say, that don't really like to talk at the table very much, especially if you're just sitting down to play a game at a convention with four people you have never met before in your entire life. If you're playing an auction... You can't just sit there and be, like I like to say, in your shell and not poke your head out. You have to talk. And it would be a good icebreaker for, like I said, for convention play. Especially, you know, first game of the day, you're kind of uncomfortable because you're around a whole bunch of people that you don't know. But you sit down to play Goa or or whatever and you have to talk because that's part of it. You can't yeah. just sit there and move your bits around. But if you're in that shell, I would choose your auction game carefully. <laughs> <laughs> One other good thing I like about auctions is because it can make you think differently about something. It can, maybe you don't really, eva- you don't evaluate something the way that someone else does. And so that makes you think about, well, maybe, maybe I should be paying more attention to hmm. this because... Tony really seems to want, like a power grid, Tony really seems to want that power plant, and I thought it was kind of a crappy one. Why does he really want that? And then that'll get your brain thinking of, oh, well, maybe it's because it only uses nuclear energy. What am I missing? Yeah, I didn't really want that because that's really expensive, but maybe that's a better way to go about things. So I think that's a, it's, it def, it can, it can make you, make you think about your decisions more instead of just kind of going with the flow. Forcing you into different perspectives. Exactly. Makes you think about something differently. So guys, what are some things that make auctions bad in games? What do you not like about auctions? I wouldn't say things that I don't like about auctions, but maybe things that can turn people off of them. Not necessarily Edward, but in general. First off, there is a experience differential 
here as far as new players versus experienced players in games. They have, if you're new to a game, you have no frame of reference a lot of times. And so you have no idea how to properly value whatever X is up for auction. Um, and to be honest, that's one of the big gripes on the opening auctions of a lot of 18xx games like 1830. And that's the appeal of a game like 1846. It does away with the auction and it does it as a draft. So, okay, no harm, no foul there. But in 1830, I mean, there are certain base rules, and by rules I mean more or less tribal knowledge, that, oh, okay, nothing should sell for less than 70% of its total buy-in price. If you're a new player, how the hell are you supposed to know that, dude? Unless you've done research on the game and everything beforehand, there's no way that you would know that. And that is a huge, huge uh, just impediment to new players in auction games. And by new players, I mean you being new to the game. You could have played a million auction games. But you've never games, played you this played game. This before. one. Right. Exactly. Right. People think uh, that makes an auction hard, but it's it's the valuation that's hard, not the auction. Auctions are simple. It's determining value, exactly. And what how Tony values something might be different than how Amanda does it or how I do, which... That actually adds to the auctions, but also can take a little bit. It, they're fragile yeah. in a sense that players, if you have somebody that has no clue what's going on and everyone else does, it completely throws the value of things out of whack mm-hmm. and can basically break the game. Absolutely, because if they don't know what they're doing, then yeah. Yeah, misunderstood valuation is the ruin of a person's game, even. Or other players' games, not just their own. And we mentioned earlier, sometimes it just takes a higher player count to have good auctions in games. You know, Absolutely, because... You know any good two-player auctions? (laughs) Yeah, I I know some that work, but you said good. Right. Variants (laughs) that help it, but you have to have three or more. And sometimes, sometimes three kind of yeah. is not the greatest either. And as that French lumber company showed <laughs> through their research, I mean, they paid probably God only knows how many French francs to have some brainiac do the research and modeling and everything. You need competition in auctions to have successful auctions. So they can drag out a little bit, um, you know, if you get into protracted bids uh, or protracted bidding back and forth. Yep. Uh, they can they can take a while, um, and as we said, I think it's it's player dependent as well as group dependent. Some groups don't dig auctions, and therefore, if you don't dig it, you're probably not going to not going to add anything to the auction. You know what I mean? Um, one quick question, like in a game like 1830, where the auction is pretty important, and you might be playing with someone who's new to 1830. You know. How do you prepare them for that? I mean, is it? I think is it just hey, go do some research. Do, do you help them bid? I mean, that sounds kind of lame. Well, I don't think that you help them bid, but I definitely think that all you really need to do is look at the private, look at what what you're getting out of it. If you're getting good money every turn or every operating round, then as long as you don't go absolutely bonkers, insane with your bid, you're going to make your money back pretty quickly. And sometimes you can even get the president's share of a company, or you can get decreased amounts of money to build track through mountains or 
you get control of this fairy. Just as long as you're able to make a cohesive decision about whether or not you're getting your money's worth, even if it's what you feel your money's worth, then that's really all that matters. Because so what if you have to go watch TV, as Chad says? You made the best decision that you could at that time. I don't want someone playing a game for me. I want to yeah. play the game. I want to make the, de- the decisions. I want to make the mistakes if they are mistakes so that I can learn from them and go forward playing the game again and do a better job. I don't want Edward or Tony or Chad or when we used to play games with Charlie. I don't want anybody to tell me you only need to pay $30 for that private because that's all it's worth. Well, maybe it's worth more than that to me. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you think, even if you've played the game 80 times, maybe it's worth more than that to me. And that's what I want to pay for it. And it's my money and it's my game and it's my time. And by me doing that, it's not going to ruin your game. It might even give you the upper hand because the dumb new person made a bad decision in your eyes. The counterpoint to that, though, is if you don't bid up something that is worth far more than what the price it's currently at, then you can detri- you can be a detriment to everybody else at the table and make for a worse uh, experience for everybody else. So I wonder if there's some sort of happy medium. Could it be something, since we're going with the whole 1830 uh, example... Maybe give you some framework to work from so you're not coming into it completely blind, but even so, you still make your own decisions. But I give you a ballpark idea because I don't want you, again, the ambiguous you, ruining six hours for everybody else because you did a piss poor job of holding up your end of the bargain in the in the auction. Well, that's one, that's one way to look at it. However, I feel like that if you are... A good enough gamer and a smart enough player to be playing 1830 in the first place, you should understand that a company that gives you the president's share of X company is probably worth more than $10 or whatever. Yeah, fair, you know, sure. you should you should have some common sense there, at least underlying it a little bit. And if you're going to sit down at a game and play it for six hours, you should understand that you should have at least a frame of reference anyway. If someone else wants to give you a framework like you suggested, fine. But I still feel like you should kind of know at least a little bit about what you're doing before you go in. I had never played an 18xx game before. Whenever we first played whatever it was, EU I think maybe, I don't know. But I would, I still had the common sense to understand that because this private gave you whatever it gave you, it was probably worth more than whatever the last person that bid it was for just because of a gut feeling or just, you know, just understanding how gaming works in general, kind of, you know? So it goes back to the whole thing Tony mentioned at the beginning of this. Do you do some research or are you just, is it common sense? Well, I've said enough, Tony. What do you think? Uh, well, for a game like, say, 1830s, if that's what we're talking about, a couple things. If I'm playing with a newbie, I'm going to expect problems, maybe a reset of the game, whatever, right? Because I'm playing that game with that person or those persons um, for their educational benefit so that in the future we could play better uh, sessions of the game. And, yeah, I'll probably ask them to go read something or whatever and just come with come with one or two clues, 
and and I'm I'm playing it for the pure pleasure, and the pure pleasure also of uh, of maybe uh, acquiring another gaming partner. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. So. And I, I I know there are going to be people out there um, who hear this and just scoff at the whole. Oh, you're going to ruin the experience for everybody if you're just. I, uh, I don't you know play what? with those guys. Exactly. exactly. We that, don't that, play that, with that's what I was going to say. <laughs> All right. Couple of couple of questions here. First question. I only want a one-word answer. Do you agree that the idea of almost every Euro game is an auction game? No. <sighs> There's your one word. No. Okay, Edward, for you, this is Ginger or Marianne. Amanda, for you, this is Gilligan or the Professor. Open economy or closed economy in auction games? Closed. 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 What would you consider, obviously, maybe a little more than a one-word answer here? What do you consider to be the purest or most innovative auction game? Or as the British say, innovative. <laughs> uh, I, I would probably sit for me, uh, Medici or or modern art. I think probably modern art because that is the entire thing, isn't it? I mean, it's all auctions. <laughs> it's all auctions. Five different kinds. For me, for an auction game to be pure, I feel like the seller has to have some skin in the game. So that that probably means most of the closed economies would be closer to my definition of that, you know? Yep. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. I love plenty of open economy games. Just if I had my druthers, it would be a closed economy. Yeah, exactly. If I'm selling something in Noya Heimat, I got skin in the game. If I'm bidding on a private company in 1830, I kind of don't. Okay. Do you feel that designers use auctions as a a shortcut to game balance? Oh boy, here we go. So we had to talk about it, right? So I got a I I I got a bunch of things that people complain about, right? So here we go. They're overused. They're a fix-all patch that solves inherent problems. Need interactions. Need resources balance. Need less luck. Need to include an economy or perhaps remove money from the system. Just slap an auction on top, and. Uh, people argue that it's a way for the designers to skip having to balance it. In some games, uh, I, I, I just I appreciate the dynamic aspect that auctions bring to a game. So, are they used as crutches? I don't know. Um, I don't. I suppose some do, sure. But do I see that as an as necessarily a bad thing? I really don't because. I love dynamic games, and auctions provide that. Now, if it's completely out of left field and just a wacko auction just to have one, sure, I get what people are saying there. But as a whole, hell nah, bring it. Yeah, I agree with Edward. Unless it's completely out of left field and there's no explanation as to why suddenly you're having to auction something off, then I don't see any problem with it. And I do absolutely don't feel like it's a quote unquote, like way to skip it or way yeah. to make it easy. I've never ever asked a designer if they've ever thrown an auction in just to balance a game. So I, I can't answer that question, but I do, I do know this. It takes more than an auction to balance a game. Yes. So, you can, yep. You can't have an auction fix a bad game right well here here's here's something else um the values of various resources can vary wildly depending on on who acquires them when they acquire them the phase of the game 
um, and the state of everything else. Yeah, we just spent so, 10 minutes saying how the auction in 1830 can imbalance the game. Right. <laughs> and so I, I don't know of a way to, other than an auction, to balance some of the values when they get something versus the value of it later or vice versa. I, I, I don't know how you would balance those things without the dynamics of an auction. So do you think that auctions make a game feel more aggressive? And I will say yes, because that's one thing that my wife doesn't like about auctions. She's a little intimidated by them, too. I feel like aggressive is the wrong terminology. We, I don't know. I don't know. We talked about power. I got the power. Let me wield it. Boom. But, it's a tool. But, Boom. Let me hit you on the head with this auction. But to me, aggressive means being punched in the face. I would say that I, I think an auction makes it feel obviously more interactive. There's more tension but I don't, I don't feel it's aggressive. But maybe, maybe it's that's just my interpretation of that word. I, I think we're talking semantics here. I, I agree with Tony in a sense that if it's power and you're 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 using that power as leverage against somebody, I think aggressive is a, is a good way to put it. And I do think that there are some people that have a problem with that, whether it's. The wielding or the or, or being it, having it used against them, and they just don't like it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You just happen to be talking to three people who really dig them. Yeah. yeah. And even Amanda, I mean, you said earlier that you hated them mm-hmm. at the beginning. And you were, for lack of a better way to put it, intimidated. Absolutely. Uh, but now you've. I've come to the dark side. <laughs> and there. It wasn't a lie. There are cookies. We we do have cookies. Mm-hmm. Do you think an auction mechanic becomes more interesting in a heavier game? Well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> heavier games are more No. Well, no. Um, to me, I, I the more decisions, the better. Yeah. I think an auction mechanic can add, you know, impact to whatever weight of game. You know, yeah. But we, we all find heavier games more interesting. For sale, Biblios, any of those, yeah. those are more interesting because of the auctions. All right, last one. Is there a huge difference in your minds, guys, between a once-around and the open? I feel like the there is far more pressure and intensity in a once-around auction than there is in the, you know, going keep going around the table until uh, everybody but one person passes. And the reason for that is you have to be precise. You have to v- bid the right number. You you don't have the luxury of, oh, it's going to come back around to me. I don't need to worry. I'll just bid one more. Fine, so be it. So I, I do feel like there is a significant difference. And I prefer the going around, around, around. But at the same time, part of that is... I'm better at those, and I'm not as good at being precise as I want to be. So maybe I just need more practice. But yeah, I feel there's a significant difference between the two, even though fundamentally, mechanically, they are the same type of auction. All right, so uh, let's wrap up our auction discussion by each of us talking about just briefly one game that um, really brings out the auction mechanic for them. And for me... Modern art is that game. It's a very simple, classic Canizia game. I like it because there are multiple kinds of auctions in the game. There is a blind auction. There's a fixed price auction. There's an English auction. There's a Japanese auction. And there's the 
multiple lot auction where you're using one of those other mechanics to auction off two pieces of art, the multi-unit auction. I just think you get a, a fabulous variety of the mechanic in a, a pretty quick game that's uh, really fun to play. And depending on the version, some really beautiful art. I found a uh, version in Finland that's being produced in Finland. I'm going to order one of those tomorrow, I think. Nice. We we have the luxury, or the the we're lucky enough to have the Chinese version, which is absolutely gorgeous. Oh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And but the one the Grail out there is definitely the uh, the stamps version. Yes, absolutely. That's really cool looking. It'd be so cool to have that one. So I I have to say that um, one of my favorite games is the Great Zimbabwe. And it has a very interesting auction mechanic in that for it's for determining turn order. And in a nutshell, the bids are evenly distributed all over all of the player boards. And the monies that are used to bid for turn order are redistributed to all the players. So even if you don't bid, you still get whatever money that's on your player board whenever the auction's over. So it's, it's basically redistributing the wealth around the table. And that's a very interesting mechanic, I think. And it's one of the reasons why I like that game so much. Same here. It's absolutely fantastic. And I love the redistribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. Is that a variation of the penny bid? I'm paying all the players to make my bid, including myself. Weird. <laughs> it's really super cool. It is. Yeah. And you're paying in cows. <laughs> right. <Meh>. Cowpuls? <laughs> <laughs> So for me, I, I, I would hammer on Noya Heimet, but I think we've covered that pretty well. So I'll go ahead and take a stab at another one that I've only played a couple times, but that really, it made top 50 games for me, and that's New Amsterdam. Everything is a currency. Yeah. If you win a bid, you know, with six of something, okay, you can pay in six of whatever and mix and match however you want. And it is just a phenomenal, phenomenal auction game, especially with five players. Oh, brutal. It gets crazy with five. Yeah. But so good. Yep. Pure pain. Well, there's lots of lots of other games out there that do auctions. Biblio, Strasbourg, Spiker Stats, Stevenson's Rocket, a bunch of 18xx games. Boy, Noya Heimat, man, just just tons. We hope, uh, we hope you guys like auctions, and we've encouraged you guys to investigate further into the genre, this mechanic. Yeah, hopefully people get, you know, enjoy this and, uh, and get something out of it. And maybe those that aren't too keen on auctions, uh, they can tell us why. Or maybe this makes them come around and, hey, you know what? I didn't know there were so many types. Maybe I go try you know, th- uh, find a game with this type of auction in it or whatever. Right. Maybe I've only ever tried a blind bidding auction. I really did like that. But, oh, maybe I'll try a Japanese one next time. Maybe I'll see if I can if I can enjoy that kind. The thing I learned, though, was, and, and I don't know, maybe tell me what you guys think. Maybe we all knew this kind of implicitly, but it really feels like explicit knowledge now in doing all this research. It feels like every auction, there's a psychology and the sellers are choosing this type of auction for a reason. And some of those sellers have spent time and money to determine that's the best auction for their commodity. I feel like I'm never going to look at an auction in a game the same way. I'm going to be like, why did the designer put this one in? <laughs> yes, exactly that. Yeah, no, it's it. anytime you, you're forced to research or, or dig into whatever, and 
you know, I, I, I say I'm the world's biggest five-year-old and I always want to know the why. Yeah. Sometimes I don't realize it, but yeah, this has absolutely uh, made me want to go. I, I wish more designers put designer notes in, oh, I chose this because of that, you know, to be able to answer that question. But I, I think it's fascinating. I, I There's a whole world of auctions yeah. that I didn't know necessarily existed, like that French lumber yeah. stuff. What the? That's that's awesome, but it, it makes me want to go and explore the world of auctions now more so than I already wanted to. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Our website is heavycardboard.com. Our email address is contact at heavycardboard.com. We love to hear from you guys, so please send us email or follow us on Twitter at heavycardboard. Our Facebook page is heavycardboard. Our Instagram is heavycardboard. And our BGG guild number is 2044. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash heavycardboard. Heavy Cardboard thanks the great people at Game Surplus for their sponsorship of our show. They have an awesome reputation and a fantastic inventory of games. Their tagline is the home of great games at great prices. So check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. You can reach them via email at games at gamesurplus.com and tell them Heavy Cardboard sent you. All right, guys, so that's going to wrap up the auction episode of Heavy Cardboard. We want you guys to please listen to the next episode of Heavy Cardboard because it will be, sadly, Tony's last episode with us until Mm. his Patreon money kicks in and he can come (laughs) on every once in a while. But uh, it'll be an Age of of Steam extravaganza. It's wall-to-wall Age of Steam. We're so excited to tell you guys about this awesome awesome game and maybe bring to the light some maps that you didn't know existed or different ways to play the game that you'd never really thought of before we just really want to evangelize this game because it's wonderful and awesome and we want everybody to know about it and we were fortunate enough to reach out to some designers and folks that have added to the Aegis theme community and they were gracious enough to get back in touch so we'll have a We'll have a lot of different points of view for next episode. It should be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I can't wait. I I can't, but I can because yeah. it's bittersweet. You oh, know what I mean? From that aspect, yeah. But like Aegis Team is just one of the best Euros on the planet. Uh, agreed. <laughs> you know, so. All right. Then, uh, yeah, no longer will we say we'll catch you guys in a few weeks because nope. they're always going to be two weeks. So we'll catch you guys again in in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We'll see y'all later. Bye. Bye, guys.